0: As they cast their ballots, Americans are expressing concerns about a range of issues.
1: We have a right to bear arms. I think if somebody comes into our homes, we should be able to protect ourselves in our own home, but kids should be able to go to school safely. It's
0: Tuesday, November 8th, Election Day. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody in for Lisa Mullins. Elsewhere in election coverage, you'll take a look at what to watch as voting moves to vote counting. And you'll get reports from the battleground states of Georgia, Arizona, and Wisconsin. Growers and farmers say they're facing a labor shortage and are pushing a bill to expand work visas for agriculture
2: workers. It's not everything we need but it is a good first step about ensuring us a stable workforce.
0: It's 4.01 now. This news.
3: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Polls across the United States will be open a few more hours before the midterm election season officially ends. The outcome will determine if Republicans defeat enough Democrats to regain control of Congress. There's an open U.S. Senate seat in Pennsylvania that could determine whether Democrats maintain their edge in the Senate. NPR's Jeff Brady reports the race is close and it could be days before a result is known.
4: Republican Mehmet Oz and Democrat John Fetterman are just about even in recent polling. Pennsylvania Lieutenant Governor Fetterman, a big guy with tattoos who often wears a sweatshirt, has aimed messages at blue-collar voters. Celebrity Dr. Oz has focused on the suburbs, which mostly voted Democratic in recent elections. Former President Donald Trump endorsed Oz, but recently Oz appeared with moderate Republicans as part of his effort to secure more suburban support. Pennsylvania also has an open race for governor, Democrat Josh Shapiro is favored over Republican Doug Mastriano, who was present at the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. Jeff Brady, NPR News, Pittsburgh.
3: About a million votes have already been cast in Maricopa County, Arizona's most populous county. In Phoenix, NPR's Kirk Sigler reports there have been issues with voting machines rejecting ballots.
5: There have been some reports of machines rejecting ballots today, and Maricopa County officials are quick to stress that any voter whose ballot was rejected can still vote by filling out a new ballot on site, and that will just be delivered and counted here tonight, where I am at the Elections and Tabulation Center. Uh, This was ground zero for conspiracy theorists and election protesters. of whom have already ramped up the rhetoric in light of the problems today. This was ground zero in 2020 when President Biden won Arizona narrowly. Uh, They've got beefed up security here. I'm looking out at a new big black fence all the way around the perimeter and temporary fencing along the street and I'm told there will be a heavy law enforcement
3: presence here tonight. NPR's Kirk Sigler reporting. Tropical storm Nicole is moving closer to Florida, but NASA's decided for now the new moon rocket will ride out the storm from its launch pad at Kennedy Space Center. Here's Brendan Byrne of member station WMFE.
6: Powerful winds from Nicole could reach NASA's 322 foot tall SLS rocket. NASA made the call to keep the Artemis rocket at the pad to weather out the storm. The space agency says it's monitoring the storm and that the rocket is designed to withstand wind gusts up to 85 miles per hour while on the pad. Ahead of Hurricane Ian in September, NASA engineers removed Artemis from the pad to protect it. They rolled it back out last week. NASA is still targeting a Monday launch of the uncrewed mission around the moon. Two previous attempts were scrubbed. For NPR News, I'm Brendan Byrne in Orlando.
0: This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Polling places in Massachusetts close in just about four hours. WBUR's Simone Rios spent time talking to voters about their top concerns this election day. Andy
7: Kakura runs a media production company in Quincy. He says, although question one, known as the millionaire's tax, could affect small businesses, he wants to support it anyway. But before voting at Wollaston School this morning, Kakura said his main reason for coming out is less local than national. I'm really hoping that uh, this election goes very well and, and very smoothly. I think I've been uh, concerned about the sort of the state of our democracy right now. And so I think it's really important that I go vote. And Kakura says being a part in the democratic process, that's what's energizing him the most today. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simon Rios.
0: Massachusetts voters are also deciding three other statewide ballot questions today. Question two would require that at least 83 percent of dental insurance premiums go toward patient care. Question three would gradually raise the number of retail beer and wine licenses a single company can own. And question four would keep in place a recently passed law that will allow undocumented immigrants in the state to get driver's licenses. Voters in Massachusetts also will be casting ballots for positions including governor and lieutenant governor, attorney general, secretary of state, treasurer and auditor. Here's a reminder in case you feel compelled to snap a selfie with your filled out ballot. State law prohibits letting anyone else see the markings on your ballot. Infractions are punishable by up to six months in jail and a fine of up to $100. Join WBUR and NPR this evening beginning at 8 for live results and analysis of local and national races. You can also follow the coverage at WBUR.org. 51 degrees in Boston, lows in the mid-30s tonight. Tomorrow, a sunny Wednesday, highs in the low 50s.
8: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters return to delight all ages this holiday season, opening November 25th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public.
9: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro.
10: And I'm Melissa Nadworny. It's Election Day in America and millions are heading to the polls today.
9: Early voting numbers surpassed those from the last midterm in 2018. More than 45 million early votes were cast ahead of today. And after months of speculation about what will happen, this is the last chance for voters to have their say.
10: NPR spoke to many casting their ballots across the country today to find out what's bringing them to the polls this midterm election. Life after Roe v. Wade is a top of mind issue for voters like Celeste Pendarvis in Atlanta, Georgia. Definitely abortion rights and getting folks in office that will preserve that right.
9: The threat of recession and the reality of inflation are also motivating voters across the country, including Tom Donlin in Waltham, Massachusetts.
11: And the economy in general, you know, yeah. we're. Um, at the age we're dependent on our 401k and you certainly want the stock market to go back in the right direction and i think that's all tied in with inflation and you know government policies to bring down prices on essentials and get
9: the supply chain moving and keep it moving And guns continue to be a focus for voters, like Gladie Feliciano in Phoenix, Arizona.
1: We have a right to bear arms. I think that if somebody comes into our homes, that we should be able to protect ourselves in our own home. But outside of it, like, kids should be able to go to school safely you know, and I think that there has to be something in place to be able to change. Also student debt Marvin Casasola in Waltham has over $100,000 in
10: loans and says the Biden administration's current promise just isn't enough.
7: I'm one of those students that you know, or was one of those students still in debt, hoping something can come out of that and that promise that he made when he was running for election and now only up to a $20,000 Cancellation, that's that's the interest on the on the capital for like a couple of
9: years. Jada Santiago in Tampa, Florida, says she's concerned about a number of social issues.
12: Our current governor is attacking certain LGBTQ plus rights, women's rights, education rights, and I went in there keeping that in mind because I'm an education major and I fear for my future as an educator.
10: Voices from across the country sharing the issues that were central to how they cast their ballots, today.
9: While some reporters are out at polling places today asking about specific issues, national political correspondent Mara Lyson is looking at the big picture. Hey, Mara. Hi there, Ari. So what are some of the big questions that this election will answer?
13: One of the questions is how powerful are the fundamentals? You know, we know that normally the party out of power has the advantage, in this case, the Republicans. We know the president is unpopular. That's an important fundamental. We know that inflation is really bad and there are widespread concerns about the economy. But will those fundamentals work against the Democrats or are we so tribalized and polarized that they won't work as strongly? Other big question, especially for the Senate races, concerns what Mitch McConnell has called candidate quality. There are several Republicans, Senate Uh, candidates who've had personal problems and scandals. For example, Georgia Republican Senate candidate Herschel Walker. There are other candidates who have very low favorability ratings. That's Mehmet Oz, the Republican running for the Senate in Pennsylvania. But both Oz and Walker are still uh, favored in the polls by a tiny bit. So the question is, Uh, Voters have told pollsters, 63% of Democrats and Republicans, that they'll stick with their candidate even if they have personal or moral failings. We'll see if that works out tonight. And then the last thing we're going to find out about is whether the historical trend that all most toss-up races— within two points in the polls, tend to swing in one direction at the end. There are a lot of toss-up races tonight. They've been heading in the Republican direction. The question is, will they all break in that direction?
9: You describe the reasons that historical trends would be expected to favor Republicans tonight. If that holds, what kind of gains should we expect the GOP to make?
13: Well, in the House, I think if Democrats can keep GOP gains to 20 or less, that will be a very good night for Democrats. Anything between 20 and 30 would be a kind of normal midterm. I think if you get over 40, it would be a real Republican blowout. And then, of course, for the Senate, big question is whether Democrats can hang on. They can only afford to lose one net seat.
9: Do you think we're actually going to know the outcome tonight?
13: No, we won't. And that's something that people should really understand. Patience is our message. It could take a week. It could take longer than that. Uh, There are a lot of states that don't allow the counting of mail-in ballots until election day or later. So we might be waiting for the results for quite some time. There also might be runoff elections.
9: And in the meantime, what kind of tea leaves are you going to be trying to read?
13: Well, I think there are a couple of things I'm watching for tonight. First of all, will there be an Election Day red tsunami? We know that more Democrats vote early, more Republicans vote on Election Day. Former President Trump has asked Republicans to wait until today. Uh, to vote. Democrats have been pretty happy with their early voting turnout in a lot of states. But it, the question is, will Republican Election Day turnout swamp that? The other thing I'm watching is some uh, House races that, that will report early, like uh, in the state of Virginia. If a Democratic representative like Abigail Spanberger gets swept away from her very blue seat, we'll know that the night is going to look pretty ugly for Democrats. Um, And like everyone else, I'm also watching for how much chaos will there be at polling places? Are voters being challenged and turned away? Uh, That's something that I'm watching for.
9: Uh, There's something that President Biden has been saying on the campaign trail a lot, which other presidents before him have said. Here's how he put it last week when he was campaigning in San Diego for Representative Mike Levin.
14: Five days, five
15: days into one of the most important elections. In our lifetime. One
9: of the most important elections in our lifetime, he says. How high would you say the stakes are tonight?
13: Well, you know, every president says every single election is the most important election in our lifetime. But right. I think the stakes are pretty high because it's not just about divided government. And the fate of Biden's agenda, but there are at least three hundred and forty-five Republican candidates on the ballot who have said that the 2020 election was stolen. More than half of those candidates have a good chance of winning. Very few of them have said they would accept the results of the election if they're not declared the winner, and that I think is means the stakes are very high for democracy. Donald Trump has a playbook for this. He's already saying the vote is rigged in Pennsylvania, but uh, the playbook is simply. Uh, Call for the count to be stopped after election day, especially if Republicans are ahead. Declare victory. And if you're not named the winner, say the race was stolen. And we're watching elections deniers who are running for secretary of state in places like uh, Arizona and Nevada. Uh, If they get in, they're saying that they would possibly try to reinstate Donald Trump. So, yes, democracy is on the ballot.
9: NPR's Mara Eliasson, thanks a lot. You're
13: welcome.
10: As voters continue to cast their ballots on this election day, let me bring in NPR's Miles Parks to talk about how the voting process has gone and what to watch for when vote counts start coming in. Hey, Miles. Hey there. So let's start with the big picture. How has voting gone so far today?
16: Honestly, it's gone pretty well. I mean, we haven't seen any giant issues, including notably, we haven't seen any violence at precincts, which was a big concern considering all the vote monitoring efforts we've seen over the last couple of weeks. Federal officials also say there have been no reports of foreign interference that they've found in in voting infrastructure. But as a reminder, there are thousands of voting jurisdictions in the US, tens of thousands of precincts, and we have seen individualized kind of smaller issues pop up.
10: What, what kind of problems?
16: Well, in Arizona's Maricopa County, for instance, which is a critical place politically, it's the largest county in Arizona, Maricopa officials said earlier today that about 20% of the county's polling locations were experiencing a technical issue with ballot uh, tabulators, the, hmm. the machines that count the ballots. So officials put out a video explaining the issue, saying voters had a couple of options. They could either go to another precinct if they signed out of this one, or they could put their ballots in essentially a drop box, which would then be tabulated later on in the evening. But as you can imagine, this has been a goldmine for people pushing misinformation. Mm-hmm. People like former President Trump have already seized on this. Right-wing influencers say it's kind of some evidence of some broad fraud scheme, which is exhausting, but it's also expected. Officials have been saying for the last couple of weeks that people were going to try to seize on little normal issues that happen in every election cycle to try to say something nefarious is happening. There's no evidence that's the case.
10: Yeah, make them bigger than they seem. Mm-hmm. All right, let's turn now to some of the races. You've been watching Secretary of State races, roles involved in election administration what are you watching for
16: so the three key races I'm going to be watching are in swing states. Michigan, Nevada, and Arizona all have election deniers running to oversee voting in those states. All of these candidates say they think the 2020 election was stolen, and they all have formed a coalition that basically says they want to eliminate most forms of early voting, among other things. I spoke with Cisco Aguilar, who's the Democrat running against one of these election deniers, Jim Marchant, in Nevada. And if Marchant is elected, Aguilar said the next two years will be spent litigating the extreme changes that he's pushing.
15: What it's going to do is be a stimulus package for attorneys. You're going to have constant litigation in this state, which is going to create chaos. And by the mere fact that chaos exists will create uncertainty
16: in the election process. Now, Marchant says he just wants to secure the voting process, but Aguilar called him the most dangerous candidate on the ballot this cycle, which may sound a lot like hyperbole, but I've heard the same thing from a bunch of voting experts who are really worried about the future of democracy in a number of these states if election deniers are overseeing the process in 2024.
10: So when polls close, we're going to turn to vote counting. What should listeners keep in mind for the results?
16: The biggest word, and I feel like listeners have been hearing it a lot the last couple of weeks, is patience. You know, mm. we've seen this huge rise in mail voting over the last couple of election cycles, and mail ballots just take longer to count, especially in states like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, where the laws have not kept up with this trend, and election officials can't even start the arduous work of kind of processing these mail ballots, doing the security things that are needed mm-hmm. to keep this process safe until on election day, so especially in those states, the process may take hours. It may take days. It potentially could be weeks before we know the, the fate of some of these races. So everyone just has to take a second, take <laughs> a breath, and, you know, stay calm.
10: Yeah, and if you don't get results, don't be alarmed. No, yeah, it's yeah. normal. NPR's Miles Parks, thanks you. thank you. And when polls close, you can head to NPR.org for the first results for all the key races across the country.
9: are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. Thanks for spending Election Day with 90.9 WBUR. Follow our reporting on WBUR.org and listen live tonight starting at 8 for results and analysis from WBUR and
17: NPR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org learning. And the ICA. Discover how Jean-Michel Basquiat, Paul Clay, and many other artists have been inspired by childhood in To Begin Again, icaboston.org.
0: On Wall Street today, the Dow closed up 333 points to finish the day at 33,160. The Nasdaq ended the day up 51 points at 10,616. The S&P 500 closed up 21 points at 3828.
14: This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 419. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash way to wealth.
0: You are part of the WBUR community. That's why you are invited to our next virtual community advisory board meeting. It's Wednesday, November 16th from 4 to 6.30 p.m. You'll find details at WBUR.org slash open meetings. It's 51 degrees in Boston. Clear skies tonight. Lows in the mid-30s. A sunny Wednesday. Tomorrow's temperatures in the low 50s. This is WBUR.
18: Support for NPR comes from this station, and from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax-exempt ordering and delivery nationwide, at easycater.com. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. From
10: NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Alyssa Nadworny.
9: And I'm Ari Shapiro. Automakers are placing a big bet on the rise of electric vehicles, even though some of the people most interested in buying them can't afford them yet. We're talking about young people, say, under 40. NPR's Camila Dominowski takes a look at this enthusiasm age gap.
19: Let's start with someone who is way under 40.
5: Avi. And I'm Rog.
19: Meet Avi Aaron and his dad Rog. A few years ago, Rog was driving when Avi, then in preschool, piped up from the back seat.
20: He said, is this a Tesla? And I said, no, it's a Camry.
19: Okay, Avi said, but it's electric, right?
20: I said, nope, it's a Camry, and it uses gas.
19: If you think that was the end of the conversation, you probably don't know any preschoolers.
20: Kevin asking, like, shouldn't we drive an electric car? Why don't we drive an electric car?
19: Okay, this is obviously an extreme example of the generational divide on electric vehicles, but the divide is real. It shows up in poll after poll. People under 40 are more likely to want to go electric, but people over 40 are more likely to actually buy a new car, especially a pricey one like an electric vehicle. Is that a conundrum for the auto industry? Matt Jones with the auto pricing site True Car says maybe not.
21: We're not living only in today. We have to think about what's coming up next.
19: Think about what's coming up in, say, 2035, when California and New York will start requiring all new vehicles to be zero emission.
21: Because as we get to the time around 2035, these people who, you know, we're, we're calling youngsters now are not necessarily going to be so young.
19: In short, he argues, as automakers are ramping up production, these electric vehicle fans will be growing up into prime car buying age. Meanwhile, data show that interest in electric vehicles is rising, and not just among young people.
22: It's more so just kind of across the spectrum.
19: Shelly Francis runs a consulting group called EV Noir and talks to both automakers and drivers. She says when gas prices went up this summer, she got a lot of questions like…
22: You guys work in that electric vehicle space, like tell me more about how I can save money because these gas prices are killing me.
19: And drivers young and old care about gas prices. There are big challenges as automakers try to take electric vehicles from a few percent of sales to most of the auto market. They need materials. Charging infrastructure is a hurdle. Prices need to come down. But this age gap? It's not a major concern to the industry. As young people get older and older people get more interested in electric vehicles. Consider the Aaron family. I asked Avi, who's now seven, what the family drives today. A police dog. Polestar. That's a Volvo spinoff. And? It's an electric car. And his grandparents? They now drive a Kia Niro and a Nissan Leaf, both all electric. Camila Dominowski,
10: NPR News. The Crown is back on Netflix for a fifth season this week. And while the series can boast 21 Emmys, not everyone is a fan. A dramatized tale of the royal family returning just months after the actual death of Queen Elizabeth brings a new dimension to familiar complaints about historical accuracy. Linda Holmes, one of the hosts of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour, is here to talk about it. Hi, Linda. Hi, Alyssa. Okay, so every season there are complaints about the accuracy of the crown, which Netflix has always said is fictionalized. What's that controversy look like right now? Well, I think the death of Queen Elizabeth,
11: whose life is essentially the frame of the show, has made some people feel like these questions are more sensitive. But the bigger issue may be that King Charles has just become king. Mm -hmm. And so for people who have a reverence for the monarchy, it's uncomfortable that this season which covers his his very public breakup with Diana, is not flattering. Um, we're gonna hear a little bit of that fight. This is Dominic West and Elizabeth Debicki who are now playing Charles and Diana. This is our holiday.
18: It's a rare opportunity for us to be together with the boys as a family. And I know you struggle with that sort of thing, which is why I agreed to bring your friends along to entertain you. And I even agreed to do the photo call today, requested by your people so the lie could be paraded to the world's media about what an adoring husband you are on one condition. What's that? That you actually are one!
10: Hmm. So is it Buckingham Palace itself that objects to the crown, or where are these objectives coming from? Well, it's not from the palace directly. The palace
11: makes a policy of not officially commenting on all this. So it's hard to say how they're actually responding publicly. It's been other people objecting. This time around, former Prime Minister John Major is one, as well as the actress Judi Dench. She Mm -hmm. wrote a letter to the Times of London arguing that people might think everything they saw in the series was true when it isn't.
10: What does somebody like Judy Dench want to happen given that The Crown is already a really popular TV show and it's airing? Yeah. Well, the argument has been that it should carry a disclaimer
11: at the beginning of every episode saying that it's fictional. That's what she argued for in her letter. Netflix has declined to do that for the series, although they added a note for the trailer. Honestly. It is hard for me to imagine that doing that would make a big difference. I think it's it's more a gesture. It's a desire to have Netflix and Peter Morgan, who's the creator of the show, in some way acknowledge all these concerns as as legitimate and almost kind of apologize mm. a little bit maybe.
10: Yeah. Are there specific elements of the show that people object to or is it just this general portrayal?
11: Well, it's both. I think the biggest dust-up over a scene this season is that in the first episode, Charles is seen meeting with John Major, who was Mm. then the prime minister, and trying to nudge him toward nudging Elizabeth toward stepping down. So, in other words, it shows Charles sort of maneuvering to accelerate his own rise to become king. This is uh, West, again, with Johnny Lee Miller playing John
23: Major. You're coming to Balmoral to the Gilly's ball? Yes. Very much looking forward to it. Well, then you'll have an opportunity to uh, judge for yourself whether this institution that we all care about so deeply is in safe hands.
13: So
11: it's kind of Riley funny to me in retrospect, because he wasn't king for another, like, 30 years after this. So <laughs> if he had tried that, it certainly did not work. But. Major has said this meeting never happened, never would have happened. It's totally fictional. He said inventing it for the show was um, malicious, actually.
10: So as host of Pop Culture Happy Hour, you watched a lot of dramatized stories. Do you think it's a fair complaint that the series is unfair to the royal family? You know,
11: I am always surprised that anybody complains about this show on their behalf because I think of the series as hugely sympathetic to them. I think to a lot of people, including a lot of British people, it's too sympathetic to them. Um, that's the flip side of the, some of the distaste for it. You know, when John Major was talking about this season and that meeting that that he objected to them making up, he said, among other things, that the show um, puts words into the mouths of those still living and in no position to defend themselves. And in context, I took that to be about Cha- King Charles. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty wild right because you would think as the king you could defend yourself but that view of the monarchy as unable to change Mm -hmm. through no fault of anyone in it is in a lot of ways a, a very royalist view
10: the fifth season of the crown is on netflix this week npr's linda holmes thanks so much for being here
11: thank you for having me
9: This is NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It is Election Day and the stakes are high. Live special coverage begins at 8 tonight here on 90.9 WBUR. And you can follow local and national results all night at WBUR.org. It's 51 degrees in Boston, lows in the
17: mid-30s tonight. Tomorrow, a sunny Wednesday with highs in the low 50s. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software for Technical Computing and Model-Based Design, Accelerating the Pace of Discovery in Engineering and Science, MathWorks.com. Bentley University's Executive Ph.D. in Business, a part-time doctoral program for professionals who want data-driven research skills to solve today's business challenges. And Celebrity Series, presenting the Berliner Philharmoniker with music by Andrew Norman Mozart, and Gold, November 13th at Symphony Hall, celebrityseries.org.
8: Life was kind of put on hold
24: during the pandemic, right? It always feels like two years of your life has disappeared. Nothing really happened. It's just
8: a bit of a gap. I'm Kai Rizdal, making up for lost time next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
25: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. Control of Congress could come down to just a handful of states on this election day. Tight races in Pennsylvania, Georgia, Nevada, and Arizona. one could tip the 50-50 Senate. And on the House side, Republicans are favored to take back control. They need a net gain of just five seats. President Biden has been outwardly optimistic Democrats will hang on. But White House aides have been drawing up contingency plans should Republicans win. It's not just Congress on the ballot. Three dozen states are choosing their next governor. From Michigan Public Radio, Colin Jackson reports on a tight and heated race.
15: Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer has been closing out her reelection campaign, highlighting billions of dollars in economic investment. She's also reiterating her support for abortion rights and has welcomed out of state guests like former President Barack Obama to help paint her Republican opponent as too extreme. Meanwhile, Republican Tudor Dixon, a first-time candidate, has hammered Whitmer on her COVID-19 response and inflation. Education and parental rights issues have also become staples of the Dixon campaign. As far as money goes, it's been a lopsided battle with Whitmer and Democratic groups considerably outspending Dixon. That impact remains to be seen. For NPR News, I'm Colin Jackson in Lansing.
25: At the UN Global Climate Summit underway in Egypt, talk is of a tipping point. That's when climate chaos becomes irreversible. NPR's Ruth Sherlock is covering the conference. The
21: conference is coming at this time when scientists are saying that the world is failing to meet its targets on global warming. And it follows a raft of natural disasters this past summer, including that terrible flooding in Pakistan. And these facts Mm. are all feeding into this kind of sense of urgency from the appeals of world leaders.
25: President Biden is set to travel to Egypt on Thursday for the COP27 summit. It's NPR. This is
0: 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Massachusetts voters are deciding four statewide ballot questions today. They're also voting for all six constitutional offices in the state, including governor and secretary of state. WBUR's Miriam Wasser caught up with voters north of the city.
25: I talked to several voters in Bill today, and i say the thing I just heard again and again is that people's main concern is the economy. A lot of people talked about inflation and just how expensive gas is, how expensive it is to go grocery shopping. Other people talked about taxes and specifically their desire for the state to cut taxes. And for the most part, the people that I spoke with said that these concerns they had about the economy is why they were voting for Republican candidates.
18: WBUR's
0: Paul Connerney was in Franklin today. He says voters there seem less concerned about the races for statewide office.
26: At Franklin High School in the gymnasium, rows of ballot booths are set up for voters to fill out their ballots. Poll workers I spoke with say all day they've had a steady stream of people coming in. Poll workers suspect the ballot questions are the biggest draw, but there is a contested race for the state Senate. Incumbent Democrat Rebecca Rausch is being challenged by Republican Sean Dooley for the Norfolk, Bristol, Middlesex districts.
0: Polls are open in Massachusetts until 8 p.m. If you have last-minute questions about candidates or issues in this election, then to get some answers, check out the WBUR Voter Guide. You'll find that at WBUR.org slash Voter Guide. Then listen tonight for live special coverage of local and national election results as they come in, starting at 8 p.m. here
8: on WBUR. It's 4.34 we're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass Berry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at bassberry.com and H and H, the Handel and Haydn Society, with the marriage of Figaro, Mozart's greatest comedy, November seventeenth and eighteenth at Symphony Hall. HandelandHaydn.org.
0: It's fifty-one degrees in Boston. Lows in the thirties tonight. Sunny tomorrow. Highs in the low fifties. This is WBUR.
18: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at FisherInvestments.com. Investments and in securities involve the risk of loss. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one platform. Learn more at Indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR.
9: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro.
10: And I'm Melissa Nadworny. Tonight or tomorrow or maybe weeks from now, the balance of power in Congress will be decided. And that's something both Democrats and Republicans are already planning for, come what may. So we wanted to hear from strategists on both sides of the aisle about how they hope their parties lead the country in the new year. Elsewhere in the program, we'll speak with a Republican. But now we turn to Democratic strategist Joel Payne, who worked on Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign. Welcome.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
10: So what's the temperature of this party today? Like how confident are Democrats about their chances?
2: Well, first off, your listeners probably know Democrats are famously a little dour and uh, (laughs) filled with self-doubt, especially on election day. Um, I think there are plenty of Democrats who feel like there is a really strong agenda that Democrats have put forward, You look at the Inflation Reduction Act, you look at all the um, recovery efforts that were made in the first year of the Biden administration, infrastructure, student loan uh, forgiveness, etc. I think that there is a real misalignment in the party between should we be talking about those issues? Or should we be elevating the democracy issues that we know actually drives enthusiasm with Mm -hmm. the Democratic base. Issues like protecting women's reproductive rights, preventing election deniers, and calling out those who are responsible for January 6. I think maybe what a lot of Democrats are experiencing right now is a misalignment between what the office holders and the office seekers are saying and what the base is saying. Hmm.
10: Do you think there's anything Democrats could have done better to sell their vision to voters this election?
2: Oh boy, absolutely, and look, one of the challenges that I think Democrats have that maybe does not get enough credit is it's a pretty diverse coalition. Hmm. Like you have a coalition that includes Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Elizabeth Warren, and Joe Manchin. Hmm. So you have a a pretty wide span of people from different backgrounds, from different geographic regions that have different interests that matter to their individual constituencies. How do you speak the same language to all of those people and stay consistent? That's hard. Um, that's the work that Democrats have to do, and I think we could certainly probably do a better job of that, not just this cycle, but every cycle.
10: Can you give me just one example of one thing they could have done better to sell their vision? Oh,
2: oh, sure, I think it took a long time to get to that Inflation Reduction Act. If you remember, that started off as Build Back Better. It was a long, drawn-out public process. I think we know that typically voters of uh, the general public does not like to see how the sausage is made. Hmm. I can speak from personal experience I also. I worked in Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid's leadership office about a decade ago. It took a longer than expected time to pass the Affordable Care Act. I'd argue that made that piece of legislation less popular when it was finally passed because it took so long and it was so public. I think the same thing kind of happened with the Inflation Reduction Act. If that was being celebrated Q1 of 2022 as opposed to just a month or two ago, which it was, I think Democrats might have had a different story to tell.
10: It wasn't a magic piece of legislation that just popped up. Easier to sell when it is. That's right. Election results. They've been fraught since 2020 election. Are you confident the system is going to hold this time around?
2: I think Democrats typically feel like the system as it currently stands, there is an opportunity to get it right. I think what worries Democrats is, you know, I I talked a little bit about election deniers before think something like over half of the country is going to have an election denier on their ballot so if you look at a scenario in 2024 where a lot of these office holders or these offices are held by people who don't believe that the 2020 election was fairly um resolved you have people who essentially just disagree with facts i think that worries democrats so it's less about the election tonight yes there is always a concern about securing the election But I think going forward, the next cycle or the next two cycles, I think that's what really worries Democrats.
10: Democratic strategist Joel Payne, thanks for being with us.
2: So good to be with you. Thank you.
9: This election cycle has highlighted the growing divide in American politics over immigration. But people who advocate for and employ immigrants are still hoping that some targeted measures can get through Congress in the
27: upcoming lame duck session. NPR's Joel Rose reports. It's apple season in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Western North Carolina. Kenny Barnwell opens the door to his warehouse-sized cooler, where bins full of apples are stacked up to the ceiling.
2: It's just like a
27: wall of apples. There's eight or nine different varieties of apples in here now. Apples that all have to be picked by hand, along with other crops like potatoes, peaches, tomatoes. Nearly all, Barnwell says, picked by immigrants and migrant workers. You're
2: just not going to get a, a person that's born and raised in the United States to go to the field and
27: pick apples or go to the into the tomato field and harvest tomatoes. It is hard, hard work. Growers and dairy farmers across the country say the farm labor shortage is getting worse. That's why they're pushing a bill to expand work visas for agriculture workers. The Farm Workforce Modernization Act has already passed the House of Representatives twice with at least 30 Republican votes. That bipartisan support is encouraging for Kenny Barnwell. He's a registered Republican who's been trying for years to convince his GOP representatives in North Carolina to support a bill like this one.
2: It's not everything we need by any stretch of imagination, but it is a good first step about ensuring
27: us a stable workforce. We need to get this done while we got this narrow window. That narrow window is the upcoming lame duck session of Congress. Ambitious plans to overhaul the nation's immigration system have failed yet again. But immigrant advocates say there's a real chance that more modest proposals will find bipartisan support, after the heat of election season has passed. Rebecca Shee is with the American Immigration Business Coalition, which is backing the farm workforce bill.
24: Congress usually doesn't move into action
12: unless there's a crisis. And we have a food crisis. We need more workers.
27: It's not just farm workers and the agriculture industry. A lot of immigrants and their allies are looking, hopefully, to this lame duck session. Advocates for Afghan evacuees are urging Congress to pass a bill that would give them permanent legal status. And DACA recipients who are in danger of losing their protections are looking for help, too. But they will all have to persuade key Republicans who are focused on the record number of migrant apprehensions at the southern border.
21: I can't imagine a path forward until we find some way to deal with the
27: crisis at the border. Here's Senator John Cornyn of Texas at a hearing in September.
21: It's hard for us to make progress on areas even where there's consensus on the topic of immigration while the border is on fire
27: still some republicans do see a narrow window in the lame duck session
21: i would argue that actually passing this bill will help at the border
27: that's congressman mike simpson republican from idaho and one of the co-sponsors of the farm workforce bill which he argues will discourage illegal immigration i don't think we'll have as many people coming across because these people will be here legally they'll be able to come and go the farm workforce bill would create a pathway to legal status for some farm workers Immigration hardliners don't like that. They say it's giving quote, amnesty to immigrants who've been working illegally in the U.S. for years. But Simpson says the pathway to a green card in this bill is not easy, and it's not quick. Farm workers have to work in agriculture for at least eight years to qualify. Simpson says this is a carefully crafted compromise that has support from a broad range of employers and farm workers. I think this
21: is becoming the, the kind of the last hope. This is the best chance we've got of, of getting it done.
27: Simpson expects the Senate sponsors to release their version of the bill shortly after the election. If it doesn't pass, the whole process has to start over again in the next Congress. And Simpson doubts that this delicate compromise could make it through the House again if Republicans take control. Joel Rose, NPR News.
10: to All Things Considered from NPR News. Since Russia's invasion in February, Italy has been one of the European Union's staunchest supporters of Ukraine. But as NPR's Sylvia Padroli reports, there's concern that Ukraine fatigue is beginning to set in.
28: Last month, Italy got a new right-wing coalition government. Prime Minister Giorgia Meloni has vowed she will continue her predecessor's staunch support and military assistance for Ukraine. But polls show that fewer than 40% of Italians approve, says Stefano Feltri, editor of the Daily Domani. Italy is by, by large the most uh, skeptical country in Europe in uh, supporting Ukraine on, uh, on a military basis. We are open to Ukrainian migrants and refugees, but the military option is very unpopular, from left and right. Businesses have shut down due to rising energy costs, and inflation is at 11%. The Nomisma Research Institute reports that 62% of Italian households currently live on less than $2,000 a month. And many blame the war in Ukraine for their economic woes. This weekend in Rome, tens of thousands marched in the biggest national peace rally since the war started. Organizers say 100,000 people took part. The rally was organized by trade unions, numerous Catholic associations, and peace groups. Banners carry the words peace, no to war, and stop sending weapons. Many protesters say sending weapons to Ukraine further fuels the conflict. Stefania Vaziolo came all the way from Venice to proclaim her opposition to assisting Ukraine. Europe is very weak now and subject to American authority, says Vaziolo, and she's absolutely convinced the United States has vested interests that the war in Ukraine continue indefinitely. The majority of marchers acknowledge that Russia started the war, but add, it's high time for peace talks. Yet, when asked, most are vague exactly how the warring parties can be brought to the negotiating table. One of the politicians here is Laura Boldrini, an MP of the left-of-center Democratic Party.
29: We have to get a ceasefire and also we have to try to get uh, an, an international conference uh, w- we, with all the, the world leaders to impose peace and put Putin in a condition that he has no choice.
28: The government is set to approve Italy's sixth package of military aid for Ukraine. And Prime Minister Meloni has stated Italy will never be the weak link of the West but some analysts are beginning to wonder. I have doubts that uh, her pro-Ukrainian stance can be consistently maintained in the future. Federico Fubini, editorialist at the Daily Corriere della Sera, says Meloni faces opposition from within her own ranks. To say it bluntly, she uh, she's a populist, and she perceives that large parts of the Italian public opinion, especially among you know, center-right and rightist voters are not so much for sanctions and not so much for Ukraine. Fubini says Meloni's position on sanctions differs from the previous government. Meloni has floated the idea Italy could be compensated by the EU for economic losses inflicted by the sanctions, a request that could cause a serious rift in what up to now has been Europe's united front on Ukraine. Sylvia Poldroli, NPR News, Rome. And you're listening to NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. As you are following election results tonight, keep WBUR.org open on your phone or iPad. You'll get all the key local and national results in one place when you follow the vote
17: at WBUR.org tonight. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Antiquarian Book Fair. Rare books, maps, and prints at the Heinz, this Friday through Sunday. Appraisals open to the public on Sunday. BostonBookFair.com The Boston Symphony Orchestra. Seek something new with the BSO's upcoming season. Thrilling music and world-class performers await. Learn more today at bso.org. And Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org learning.
0: Coming to WBUR City Space Tuesday, November 15th veteran Washington Post journalist Margaret Sullivan. She'll discuss her new book, Newsroom Confidential. For tickets, go to org slash events. It's 51 degrees in Boston. Clear skies tonight. Lows in the mid-30s. A sunny Wednesday. Tomorrow's temperatures in the low
17: 50s. WBUR supporters include La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, flavorful modern Latin American fare, catering office holiday parties and gatherings in greater Boston, LaCuchara.com. Direct Tire and Auto Service, a dealer alternative, your local mechanic and tire dealer serving Newton, Watertown, and the surrounding communities, directtire.com. And Independent Education Group, guiding families seeking private and therapeutic school admissions and student academic advising. More at independenteducationgroup.com.
22: The 2022 midterms are here.
6: Democracy's
17: on the ballot.
22: Enough
15: is enough is enough. We need conservative fighters that will go on offense.
22: Tuning out is not an option. Join us later today for a live Election Day special. As polls close across the country, we'll bring you updates from across the U.S. and analysis from our experts. Election Day 2022 from NPR News.
27: Live coverage and complete results begins tonight at 8 o'clock on 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org.
9: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro.
5: And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. It can be all too easy to paint Vladimir Putin as a cartoon villain, a thug, an evil genius, a spy schooled in the black arts of the KGB. It can be so easy that in fact Andrew Weiss has done it weiss is a russia expert he has met putin has tracked him from posts at the state department the pentagon and the white house and now weiss has written as he pitched it to me a seriously quirky graphic novel about the russian president the book is titled accidental czar the life and lies of vladimir putin andrew weiss welcome thanks so much for having me this book is a joint venture It's written by you. It is illustrated by Brian Box Brown. And y'all really do have Putin resembling a comic book villain. Like literally in one frame, he's shooting lasers from his eyes at his enemies. Why did you want to tell Putin's story this way?
15: Well, for more than 20 years, the Kremlin has deliberately been trying to make Putin seem like a larger-than-life James Bond-style super spy. That's why we always see him carrying weapons, prancing around without a shirt on, that kind of thing. The Russians are masters at getting in our heads and shaping the way we think about things. What the Kremlin doesn't want you to know was that Putin was actually an undistinguished, mid-level former KGB officer. And then he washed out of the KGB after barely making it to the rank of Lieutenant Colonel. The Kremlin wants to fuzz all of that up.
5: Hmm. I have read my share of Putin books. You open yours with a remarkable story that I had not heard before to do with Putin's parents, in particular, his mother in post-war Leningrad, now now St. Petersburg. Would you briefly tell us what happened?
15: So the siege of Leningrad was one of the most brutal moments of the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union. People starved to death and uh, resorted to incredible, horrible things to survive. And Putin's father, who was fighting in the in the Soviet Red Army, came home wounded from the war and basically found his wife on a pile of corpses in a cart being taken away. Putin's dad plucked her off the cart and brought her home and nursed her back to health.
5: It's horrific. How do we know it's true? How do we know that happened?
15: Well, as with everything with Putin, you're not totally sure. But what we do know for sure is that his mom barely survived the war. And Putin had an older brother who didn't survive the war. He was taken from the family, put in an orphanage so that he would have enough to eat. But he died of diphtheria during the war and was buried in a mass grave. Mm. Putin never met his brother.
5: So that tells us a little bit of, I mean, it's the struggle to imagine what impact that would have on a child, that that's what was happening to their family. I want to fast forward to 1966. Putin is now in ninth grade. And you write about how he walked up to the big KGB building in Leningrad. With what aim?
15: So he had been a real screw up as a kid. He'd basically been a street thug. And it was his love of the KGB studying judo, studying German, that made him get his life back on track. And so when he was in high school, he walked up to the front door, knocked on the door and said, I want to work here. And the person who answered the door said, kid, get out of here, beat it. We don't take walk-ins.
5: Especially not ninth grade (laughs) walk-ins. It's a stretch.
15: (laughs) Exactly. But then Putin said, well, how do I get a job here? And the guy said, you need to go to college. And that's what Putin did. He threw himself into being a good student And for a working class kid from the wrong side of the tracks, getting into the most prestigious school in Leningrad was no small feat.
5: Well, he does it. I mean, In 1975, he enters the KGB. He's posted to East Germany at the time of backwater. Those years have been much documented because people are so curious about how that may have influenced who Vladimir Putin became. What do you want us to take from that chapter from those years in his life? The most
15: important thing that Putin experienced in East Germany was the spontaneous unraveling of the German Democratic Republic, the DDR. He saw what happens when people take responsibility for their own freedom and their destiny. And it's the fear of that kind of situation that animates pretty much, I think, Putin's most deepest, darkest fears about the United States and what the ultimate agenda for the United States is with regard to Russia.
5: Let me bring us up to today and Putin's war in Ukraine, a war that even he, there seem to be signs that he grasps that it is not going entirely to plan. How do you explain his miscalculation there?
15: Part of it has to do with the fact that Putin probably had the worst work from home experience of any foreign leader. He (laughs) retreated during the pandemic. He marinated himself in conspiracy theories and bogus history about Ukraine. But then the thing which we all have to remember is that Putin is an opportunist and an improviser. The US withdrawal from Afghanistan in the summer of 2021 convinced him that the Zelensky government would crumble if Russia pushed for regime change in Kyiv and that the U.S. and the Europeans wouldn't push back. So he made an epic miscalculation, and he's paying an enormous price for that today on the battlefield.
5: This next question is outside the scope of your book, but I want to take advantage of having a true Putin expert on the line to ask the Ukraine question that a lot of people are asking these days. Would Putin use nuclear weapons in Ukraine? What do you think?
15: The danger when it comes to nuclear weapons, and this is a theme that starts on literally on page one of the book, is this level of emotionalism and impulsivity that Putin has displayed at key moments in his life. This is a man whose emotions have often gotten the best of him. I saw this firsthand at the White House, and it's part of why leaders like Joe Biden have to take seriously the threats to use nuclear weapons in Ukraine.
5: What was your story? What was your experience? At the White House that causes you to say that?
15: So I was in President Clinton's private residence for his farewell call with Putin in early 2001. And at the time, we knew Putin had this hothead streak. And we were really worried about Russian bullying of Georgia, the neighboring country in the South Caucasus. And we told Putin in the phone call, you need to knock it off. And what surprised President Clinton and everybody else who was listening in was how Putin just exploded. He totally lost his cool in this phone call. And it revealed to me that even for all of his image of this cool calculating career intelligence operative, there's this hothead, this street tough, not too far underneath the surface. And we all need to be very careful in how we manage a person with that kind of behavior.
5: I was in Russia in 2018 to cover the last presidential election, which he won. A lot of people we interviewed said it wasn't a win so much as a, an illegitimate coronation to his fourth term. They have presidential elections there coming up in 2024. Are we getting any glimpses of what his plan might be?
15: Putin's trapped. There are no institutions that will allow Putin to hand off power to someone else and be comfortable that he won't end up in a jail cell either in moscow or in the hague as a result of the horrible crimes that have been committed in ukraine so the only real pathway for putin is to stick it out wait out the west wait out ukraine and hope at some point we either lose heart or we stop paying attention to what's going on that's basically what he's hoping for and he's also hoping of course that we'll have elections in 2024 and there'll be a new u.s president who's going to put the u.s on a totally different trajectory
5: yeah, it's going to be two very interesting presidential elections to watch in 2024. Andrew Weiss of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. We've been talking about his new book, Accidental Zor: The Life and Lies of Vladimir Putin. Andrew Weiss, thank you.
4: Thank you.
9: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
18: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Universal Pictures with She Said, starring Carrie Mulligan and Zoe Kazan as the New York Times journalists whose investigation helped ignite a movement based on actual events. Only in theaters November 18th, rated R. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and anxiety. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public.
17: We are funded by you, our listeners, and by An Unlikely Story Bookstore and Cafe. Serena Burdick discusses her new work, The Stolen Book, with Whitney Scherer on November 10th. And com. and Catchlight Painting, committed to meticulous interior and exterior painting, including new and historic properties. See their portfolio at CatchlightPainting.com. I'm
19: senior business reporter Yasmin Amr.
0: Voters around the country are casting ballots today and they explain what they expect in the next two years and what they want from the candidates they support. It is Tuesday, November 8th, Election Day. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Sharon Brody in for Lisa Mullins. Most analysts favor the Republicans to win at least partial control of Congress and a divided government could cause problems for President Biden's agenda.
20: It's not to say that nothing will get done, but the ambitions will need to be scaled far, far back.
0: You'll also take a look at some of the gubernatorial races in the spotlight. Tomorrow, the Supreme Court hears arguments in a case that will decide the future of the Indian Child Welfare Act. And suburbs are now the most diverse areas in America. Researchers discuss the transformation. It's 501 First This News.
26: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. It is the last day of voting in this year's midterm elections, and election officials in some key swing states are only just starting to prepare mail-in ballots for counting. MPR's Hansi LeWong reports laws to prevent some states from starting to process mailed ballots earlier can slow down counting.
20: This election night might not be results night in states like Pennsylvania, where the Senate race is close and voting by mail is on the rise. More than 1.4 million mail-in ballots have been requested, and because of Pennsylvania state law, local election officials have had zero time before today to start doing prep work, like opening the envelopes, taking the ballots out of the envelopes, flattening the ballots, and then stacking them so they're ready for counting. Pennsylvania's acting secretary of state says results will be available within a few days of the election. Those results are expected to include the winner of Pennsylvania's Senate race, which could decide which party controls the U.S. Senate. Hansi Luang, NPR News, Philadelphia.
26: Voters, meanwhile, are still heading to the polls at this hour, though the concept of Election Day has morphed into election season, with tens of millions of voters having already cast their ballots, either by mail or in person at early voting centers. So far, few major problems are being reported at physical polling places. As for what's on the mind of voters in this critical midterm election, Paula Wiesend is a registered Democrat in New York. She notes both the economy and individual freedoms are front and center.
2: I
12: think it's really about what are the values that are important to you. Is it the civil rights
11: and human rights or is it, you know, the financial uh, burdens that the country is faced with? So I think that's really what's on the the
26: ballot. Voters, though, through recent polls have indicated such issues as the economy, crime, and abortion are top of mind. Voter turnout could surpass the old record in the 2018 midterms at 50.1%. In Maricopa County, Arizona, some vote-tabulating machines experienced technical problems that have now reportedly been resolved. There's no immediate indication it was a deliberate disruption. NPR's Jenna McLaughlin reports there are safeguards in place to make sure people there can still
5: vote.
30: A senior official from the Department of Homeland Security's cyber agency CISA says that voters in Maricopa County, Arizona have no reason to fear their votes will not be counted, despite technical challenges. The malfunctioning ballot scanners are one example of what the official described as very normal election day hiccups. And there are safeguards. Arizona uses paper ballots to certify results, for example. Following the presidential election in 2020, when President Joe Biden narrowly won the state, Arizona became a hotbed for election deniers and threats to poll workers. That makes reassuring voters even more important. Jenna McLaughlin, NPR News.
26: On Wall Street, stocks closed higher today ahead of the midterm election results. The Dow Jones Industrial Average up 333 points. The Nasdaq rose 51 points. The S&P 500 closed up 21 points today. You're listening to NPR News in Washington.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Massachusetts voters have just under three hours left to cast ballots. Voters are deciding statewide races, including governor, lieutenant governor, and attorney general. Tom Kane voted in Bill Rickup and says several key issues prompted his support for GOP candidates.
8: I basically went um, Republican across the board today. was really um, focused on the inflation today and... Um, And crime and just trying to get our country back to uh, where I think it's uh, a better place.
0: Residents also are voting on four statewide ballot questions. Stick with WBUR and WBUR.org today and tomorrow for complete election coverage. One of the biggest issues on the minds of Massachusetts voters today, question one, the so-called millionaire's tax would impose an additional 4% tax on income over a million dollars. This morning, WBUR's Simone Rios spent time talking to voters about the proposal.
7: One small business owner told us the millionaire's tax could affect him personally, but he thought it was in the public's best interest and planned to vote for it. Not so for Diane Gardner of Quincy. She doesn't think the money raised would actually go where it's intended, transportation and education.
27: They say, oh yeah, that'll be so that um, that money will be allocated. No, they've ripped us off before. They've taken our Social Security. Was this, no, they're all fat cats sitting in there and living off our hard-working tax dollar. No way.
7: But a recent poll before Election Day finds Gardner is in the minority. It found roughly 6 in 10 mass voters support the initiative. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone
0: Rios. Join us tonight at 8, online and on the radio, for live results and analysis of local and national races. In other news we're following today... Fire officials in Lynn are investigating a house fire that claimed the life of a child. The fire started around 4 o'clock this morning at a multifamily home on Circuit Avenue. The cause of the fire is under investigation. Lows tonight in Boston in the mid-30s. Sunny tomorrow. Highs in the low 50s. This is WBUR.
17: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com.
9: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro.
17: And I'm Alyssa Nadwarni.
10: It's election day, and it's a close one in a lot of places. So it will be a while before we know exactly how, how all the races turn out. But we do know that historically, the party out of power gained seats in midterm elections. And given how narrow the majorities are in the House and Senate, Republicans could regain control of at least one chamber. So what might that mean for President Biden and his agenda? Let's talk about that with Ozma Khalid and Deirdre Walsh, who cover the White House and Congress, respectively. Welcome to you both. Good to be hey there. here. Deirdre, let's start with you. What would a GOP-led House agenda look like?
31: Well, the president's agenda would essentially be shut down. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy has already said the first item on a House GOP agenda, if he's elected speaker, would be rolling back a signature Biden bill, the Inflation Reduction Act. McCarthy points to the the cuts that he wants in that bill that would hire more IRS agents. Negotiations over spending bills would be really difficult. Republicans want to slash federal spending and force cuts in some programs in return for raising the nation's borrowing limit. Any kind of standoff over that could threaten a default unless Congress decides to raise the debt limit by the end of this year before any change in control. There are also questions about continued aid to Ukraine. Many GOP candidates on the ballot oppose it. And McCarthy has signaled a major foc- focus of a Republican House would be on investigations of the Biden administration on things like the withdrawal from Afghanistan, the border, and origins of COVID.
24: And, and you know, if I can chime in yeah. here, I
31: mean, all of these
24: investigations will certainly put the White House on defense. Uh, as Deirdre mentioned, President Biden's legislative agenda will essentially come to a screeching halt, meaning you won't see new. Bills beyond a passing a budget to fund the government. But look, I will say, you know, the White House has known that this is a possibility. Biden himself joked, I was out with him the other day on the campaign trail, that uh, Republicans, he says, want to impeach him. But, you know, one thing I want to mention Deirdre uh, said that the The man who's expected to take over as leader in in the House wants to repeal aspects of the Inflation Reduction Act, and Republicans will try that. But the president himself said, President Biden, that ultimately, Steele he has the power of the veto and he intends to use it. So how is Biden going to try
10: and adjust his agenda to this
24: potential new reality? Uh, He's going to likely focus more on executive actions and foreign policy. And that is something that predecessors in similar positions have done. Uh, I will say that, you know, if Republicans take control of the House, it does establish for President Biden, I think ahead of the 2024 election, a clear contrast for him. Um, You know, he hasn't had that these past couple of months, given the fact that Democrats control Congress. Um, He has not had a clear foil. And this is something I heard from Fez Shakir, he's a Democratic advisor on the left, he said that a potential House GOP majority actually makes it easier for the president to talk about what Democrats want to do.
20: His conversation with the American public gets a lot easier, you know, in some ways, politically. You could say, this is what I want to do, this is the agenda I want to pass, and I got Republicans here in the
6: House standing in my way.
10: Deirdre, is there some risk for Republicans here if there's no legislative agenda and, and they just focus on investigations?
31: There definitely is. As Asma noted, you know, the president still has a veto pen. And a lot of the things that uh, House Republicans could pass through a Republican House could not potentially get through a Republican Senate because it's unlikely even if the Republicans gain the Senate and the House, they wouldn't have 60 votes in the Senate. So, you know, a a lot of, there's just a lot of turnover of members of Congress. A lot of the members of Congress who are serving now weren't around the last time there was divided government with GOP leaders on the Hill and a Democratic president. So some of these new members who've been there for a couple of years and candidates are talking about bold changes that they want to pass through the House, like cuts to Social Security and Medicare. Those things have bipartisan support won't go anywhere in the Senate. And that could backfire on yeah. Republicans. And a couple of people that I
24: spoke with said that House Republicans could very easily overstep here. You know, it's one thing to do a House investigation on the Afghanistan withdrawal. It is an entirely other thing to do an investigation into Hunter Biden. And one of the dangers I would say that I've heard from analysts is that Republicans could potentially overread these election results as some sort of mandate. I spoke with Brendan Buck. He's a former spokesman for Republican House speakers, Paul Ryan and John Boehner. And he, told me if Republicans have learned a lesson from the 2010 midterms, it's to interpret these results very carefully.
9: If Republicans find themselves
20: thinking that it was all about them, they're at risk of uh, seeing some backlash
26: themselves, and that's what we saw in 2000. Ten
20: into 2012,
24: and, and Alyssa, what he means by this is that you know it's it's something I should say. I also heard from other analysts is that what happens in these midterm elections tonight is not necessarily an indication of what could happen in two years in a general election. They point to the fact that in 2010, Democrats lost 63 seats in the House. Two years later, Barack Obama won re-election.
10: Yeah, so could mean a lot of things. We'll, we'll keep watch all night. That's NPR. White House correspondent, Osma Khalid, and congressional correspondent, Deirdre Walsh. Thanks to you both. My Thank pleasure. You.
9: In many parts of the country, Americans will soon finish up voting. About 46 million people cast early ballots. And today, lines to vote in some places were hours long. NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro is here to tell us what to look out for this evening. Hey, Domenico. Hey, Ari. What are the first signs that you're going to be watching for?
6: Well, this is exciting. We're getting real results, first of all. So that's going to be uh, super interesting and fun to do after all this time watching polls. So let's see what the real results say. And we're keeping an eye on, you know, these... Last uh, few minutes here, you know, how smoothly things are going, Uh, sort of the calm before the storm. you have got everybody biting their nails, wondering what's going to happen. You know, you just got to kind of let it wash over. Uh, Pretty soon we'll be right in the thick of it. And we're watching the earliest poll closing states. Places like Indiana, Virginia, and Georgia with key races in the House that are going to likely give us some idea of which direction things are going. Virginia's 2nd Congressional District, for example, Elaine Loria is running there. She's one of the members of the January 6th committee. How salient was the preserving democracy message? How salient is the abortion rights message that so many Democrats in some of these more moderate to right-leaning districts have been running on?
9: We keep calling this election day, but you have been framing it differently as the next phase (laughs) of election season. Why the (laughs) distinction?
6: (laughs) Well, because we're not going to know all the results tonight, probably. You know, people really have to be patient. This could go on a while. And I really have to stress that this is perfectly normal. It takes a long time to count these votes. Uh, It's really not how people are used to watching election nights. They see something happen. Broadcast networks can project out what's going to happen oftentimes. But in close elections, in close races, this is going to go on for some time. But that is not going to mean we're not going to hear from some of these Uh, Dozens and dozens of election denying candidates who might say and throw some chaos into the situation and say that, you know, that there was some something that happened that was nefarious. But none of this is nefarious. This is all exactly the way things normally work and work out. I'm also watching turnout tonight. Um, there were some signs that this could be record-breaking turnout, but it sounds like it's actually going to wind up being something short of 2018. I talked to Professor Michael McDonald at the University of Florida, sort of the turnout expert in the country, and uh, he said that Trump is just such a much bigger turnout machine for both parties that we're unlikely to see things match 2018 exactly.
9: We know that the House and Senate are both almost evenly divided, and history suggests that Democrats are likely to have a difficult time tonight since the president's Party tends to lose seats. How much is that holding true so far?
6: Yeah, well, 28 seats on average is what. president's parties have lost in their first midterms since World War II, and it's 43 seats on average when the president is below 50 percent, which Biden is and has been since uh, last August when uh, the United States pulled out from Afghanistan. Um, You know, so it's difficult also for Democrats really in this environment to make a positive case on something like inflation when you control Washington, even though really blaming Democrats is probably too reductive. You know, it's a lot easier to blame Democrats since they're in charge and the price of gross. Are high. It's a much tougher thing to sort of try out a message that says, well, you know, it's really a global supply chain situation and it's not 100% Democrats' fault when really, you know, they only put in place uh, some money that went to thousands of people that or millions of people that was only had a minor effect on inflation, a lot tougher to make that case. And it's why something like abortion rights has been the thing that has really uh, motivated a lot of Democratic voters, especially white women with college degrees and younger voters who Democrats are trying to push out to the polls.
9: You said it's likely that
6: we won't know results tonight. And that's normal. Any sense of when we might? It's possible we'll find out what the results are in the House some point this evening, maybe late in the evening, but it won't be until late in the evening. Remember, polls close in California and on the West Coast 11 p.m. Eastern time. So we're not going to find out at least until then at the earliest. The Senate could go on for days, if not weeks. I mean, think about the Georgia Senate race, for example. Uh, You know, both parties need just one seat as a net gain to take over the Senate because it's only 50-50. That Georgia Senate race, if nobody gets to 50 percent or high, tonight, that's going to go to a December 6th runoff, which could very well mean control of the Senate not decided for a month.
9: And what are the chances that some of these election deniers are going to potentially throw the outcome of a legitimate election into chaos through court challenges or or other refusals to acknowledge the outcome.
6: I think we have to be very prepared for that as a real distinct possibility. There's a lot of intensity around these elections. There's a lot of distrust around the elections, especially on the Republican side, because of what former President Trump has sowed in lying about the fact that he believes he lost the 2020 election, even though that's not the case, or that he won and it was taken away from him, which is not the case. Um, But We've already seen from Trump tonight talking about this afternoon talking about how there's issues with voting in Arizona, which we know are not entirely the entire uh, the case.
9: We'll see how it plays out. NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro, thank you very much. You're welcome. Low-income countries will need trillions of dollars to tackle climate change, and that's more money than wealthy governments will be able to provide. So leaders at the UN Climate Change Conference are debating how to nudge the private sector to make up the difference. Tomorrow on All Things Considered, what the corporate world has and has not done to address global warming.
10: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. If you are heading to the polls in these last hours of voting, then remember you can make informed choices on ballot questions by consulting the WBUR Voter Guide. You'll find the answers and explanations you need before you vote at WBUR.org VoterGuide.
17: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU's Metropolitan College, offering graduate degrees providing competitive skills in the field of marketing. Find on-campus master's programs in areas such as advertising and innovation and technology, along with online degrees in health communication and global marketing management. Visit bu.edu met.
0: On Wall Street today, the Dow closed up 333 points at 33,160. The Nasdaq ended the day up 51 points at 10,616. The S&P 500 closed up 21 points at 3828. This
14: is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash way to wealth. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to
31: WBUR.org.
0: It's 49 degrees in Boston, clear skies tonight, and overnight lows dropping to the mid-30s. A sunny Wednesday, highs in the low 50s. And on Thursday, you can expect sunshine with highs reaching the mid-60s. This is WBUR.
18: Support for NPR comes from this station, And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at aecf.org. And from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org.
9: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro.
18: And I'm Melissa Adworney.
10: What started as a custody battle over a foster child heads to the Supreme Court tomorrow. And the decision may have implications for the sovereignty of all Native American tribes. The case is Brackeen v. Holland. The Brackeens, who are white, adopted a Native child after a prolonged fight with a Navajo nation. Holland is Interior Secretary Deb Holland, who also happens to be a member of the Pueblo of Laguna. The Department of the Interior helps administer the 1978 Indian Child Welfare Act, often called ICWA, which says that when a Native American child is in the foster system, the government should try first to place that child with a blood relative, a citizen of that child's tribe, or any tribal citizen looking to adopt. If the U.S. Supreme Court finds that the Indian Child Welfare Act is unconstitutional, that could dismantle other legal protections for all Native Americans. Rebecca Nagel is a citizen of Cherokee Nation and host of the podcast This Land, whose second season dives deep into the details of this case. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. So the Brackeens
32: have already adopted their child. What's their argument? They are saying that ICWA, while it didn't prevent them from adopting this toddler, that it made that adoption more difficult. You know, it's kind of like a white student suing a university over the affirmative action policy, but then that student was actually admitted to the school. So we're talking about racial discrimination in their argument? Yeah, and that's really why this case is a really big threat to really the legal foundation of the rights of indigenous nations in the United States. So the Brackeens and their co plaintiffs claim that they their constitutional rights were violated because they experienced racial discrimination because they are not native. Even though, again, for the most part, the non- Native foster parents did win custody. And so what is scary about that argument, and it takes a couple steps to understand, but basically the way that the law works in the United States is that there's a whole host of laws that treat tribes and tribal citizens differently. And that difference in the law isn't based on race, but is based on our unique political status as sovereign indigenous nations. And so if ICWA discriminates based on race, well, then what about like the health clinic where I go and get my teeth cleaned? If you're not a tribal citizen, you can't get your teeth cleaned there. What about gaming regulations that allow tribes to operate casinos where non-native casino developers can't? If we're just a racial group, what racial group in the United States has its own courts, its own police force, its own land base, its own water rights, its own government, its own elections? And so the thinking or the fear is is that the Brackin case is the first in a series of dominoes. And if they can topple ICWA, then everything else will go with it. Why does the Indian Child Welfare Act exist in the first place? So in the 1950s and the 1960s, the US federal government systematically removed native children from their families and their tribes. And I think it's important to note that the removal of children from a racial or ethnic group is an internationally recognized form of genocide. And so an organization did a big national survey and they found that 25 to 35 percent of all Native children had been taken out of their home. And, you know, a lot of times people just focus on, you know, the placement preferences that first kids should go to a blood relative and then another member of their tribe. But the law actually does a lot of stuff. It's kind of like a set of guardrails so Mm -hmm. that when a Native child either enters foster care or enters an adoption, like a private adoption, it works to keep that child connected to their family and connected to their tribe. If you look at who is talking about whether or not ICWA is good for Native kids or bad for Native kids, on the ICWA is bad side, you have a small handful of right-wing organizations that have no expertise or track record in child welfare and the private adoption industry. And then on the side of saying that ICWA is a good law that benefits Native children, basically every leading national. Child welfare organization in the United States. And so when we look at what people who are invested in the well being of children in child welfare have to say, it's almost unanimous that ICWA is a good law. And yet the Indian Child Welfare Act has been challenged a lot over
10: time. What are the chances that it gets struck down?
32: I think very high. I think unfortunately, When it comes to federal courts, there's a lot of misunderstanding about how tribal sovereignty and even just this particular area of the law even works. I think it's quite likely that the Supreme Court will disregard precedent, will disregard even just the rules of civil procedure and whether or not these individual plaintiffs even have standing, even disregard, you know, just facts and the truth, that's absolutely a test for the Supreme Court and whether or not those things of precedent, of the underlying facts still matter to this court or if it's just politics. That is Rebecca Nagel,
10: host of the podcast This Land and Citizen of Cherokee Nation. Thanks. Thank you for having me.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. It is election day, and voters across Massachusetts are heading to the polls. Election officials say they're expecting only modest turnout. As of 3 p.m., just about 25 percent of voters in Boston had cast ballots. WBUR's Walter Withman spent this morning at polling stations in Roxbury and Dorchester,
4: and brings us this report.
33: You want to?
4: Okay, Liz. So Miranda. Liz Miranda of Roxbury chats with voters outside the Salvation Army croc Center after casting a ballot for herself. She's running uncontested for her district state Senate seat after a bruising Democratic primary. She says she's excited to be part of a historic slate of female candidates.
33: I feel great that I get to run on a historic platform where we have all women uh, constitutional officers and are also our governor, lieutenant governor potentially could be a woman, and our AG is a black woman. You know, it's a historic day in Massachusetts.
4: But not every voter was so enthusiastic. Secretary of State Bill Galvin predicts lower turnout this year compared to the last midterms four years ago. At the Croc Center, only a handful of residents showed up during the mid morning. Community activist Domingo Rosa says he hasn't seen major candidates in their campaigns show up in neighborhoods like Roxbury, and that hurts turnout.
21: You should be in areas where uh, impacted by a lot of the issues you bring up during your campaign, and we don't see that here. I've yet to see a, a governor candidate here in Roxbury
1: on Dudley Street on election day.
4: It was a different scene at the polling place at Florian Hall at the southern tip of Dorchester. This historically white working-class neighborhood often sees high turnout, and this morning people were polling into the parking lot even before polls opened. One was Kayleen Sanner. She says abortion rights are her top issue, and she was excited to vote for the Democrat running for governor.
11: I love More Healy, She's a great, you know, she's a great candidate. Um, I just feel like we need to just show up and be here and
31: let our voices be heard.
4: But Dorchester voter Joan Lynch blames Democrats for high inflation and energy costs. So she voted Republican.
31: I've lost money in my retirement account. It's awful. And, and this border, the border, I don't know what they're thinking of with the border. They got people coming in, they don't even know who they are.
4: More voters are expected to cast their ballots in the next few hours. Polls close at 8 o'clock tonight across the state. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Withman.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 529, and thanks for spending Election Day with 90.9 WBUR. Follow our reporting on WBUR.org. And listen live tonight starting at 8 for results and analysis from WBUR and NPR. It's 49 degrees in Boston, lows in the mid-30s tonight, highs in the low 50s tomorrow.
8: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Clark, New England's Sub-Zero and Wolf showroom and test kitchen, where you can cook on Wolf appliances to make informed selections. More at clarkliving.com. And the University of New England in Maine, with a mission to support healthy people, healthy communities, and a healthy planet. UNE.edu. Dr. Linda Vidon, Vice President of Clinical Management for Delta Dental of Massachusetts, a WBUR underwriter.
14: We're pleased to
30: underwrite WBUR as an effective way to increase awareness of the importance of oral health. Your oral health is a key predictor of overall health, with direct links to diabetes, heart disease, mental health, and more. We believe that you can express
8: your health through better oral health. For more information, visit ExpressYourHealthMA.org.
25: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. Voting rights advocates monitoring polling sites across the country today say there have been no major concerns so far. But earlier today, about one in five polling locations in Arizona's Maricopa County were experiencing technical problems. Officials there say technicians are working on it and all votes will be counted thanks to redundancy protocols. Republicans need a single net gain in the Senate to take control, and Democrats are hoping the Supreme Court's decision to end the constitutional right to an abortion will help them hold on by driving young voters to the polls, including in Pennsylvania, where Lincoln University student body president Drake Smith is helping get out the vote.
15: Everything's at stake every year, right? As you can see, we're only oh, only about half a year or really an election away from them taking everything
26: away, right? Roe v. Wade is gone. We make sure we fight to keep that here in Pennsylvania. This is a battleground state.
25: The Senate race between Democrat John Fetterman and Republican Mehmet Oz is tight. Wisconsin also seeing a close Senate race and one of the 36 gubernatorial elections. NPR's David Shaper reports from Kenosha that voter turnout across the state is strong.
20: A steady stream of voters lined up to cast ballots at Kenosha's lakefront museums, among them 68-year-old Mary Davis. What's important to me is the schools, the high rates of the cost of living.
3: Best of all, most of all, is health insurance for young and old. And
20: the top issues for 54-year-old Francis Ellingsworth.
23: Well, definitely the economy, the inflation, the crime. I mean, that, those are the main ones, the border,
20: Election officials report smooth operations and few problems at polling places across the state, but they say the high number of absentee ballots will mean vote counting will likely go into the wee hours Wednesday morning. David Shaper, NPR News in Kenosha, Wisconsin.
25: This is NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Polls close in about two and a half hours in Massachusetts. WBUR's Miriam Wasser is in Tewksbury. She reports partisan divides are informing how people there cast their ballots.
34: I spent a while
32: talking to voters and I heard from people who voted up and down the ballot for Republicans as well as voters who voted up and down the ballot for Democrats. For those who voted Republican, I heard a lot of concerns about inflation and gas prices, as well as criticisms of President Biden. And others just said, you know, they don't trust Democrats to be in government. On the flip side, I heard from voters who said that they voted for all Democrats because they don't trust Republicans to be in charge.
0: Secretary of State Bill Galvin has said Massachusetts voters seem to be less than enthusiastic when it comes to voting for the statewide offices on the ballot. Galvin says the ballot questions seem to be the driving forces behind this year's election. Voter Yasmin K. Ali of Alston says the state's driver's license law was one of the issues motivating her. She says national issues such as abortion rights and immigration also were top of mind.
18: I
35: think
12: today's vote is super important on such a national and state level. And uh, we're at a crossroads on uh, so much uh, legislation that we each need to do our civic duty and go out and vote.
0: 2.2 million Massachusetts residents are expected to cast ballots by the end of the day. Stick with WBUR and WBUR.org today and tomorrow for complete election coverage. In other news, we're following this election day. The city of Boston has agreed to pay a law firm more than $2 million to settle a case that reached the nation's highest court. Liberty Counsel represented a man who sued the city. After he was denied an application to fly a Christian flag outside City Hall in 2017, Boston officials had said the display could be construed as an unconstitutional endorsement of religion. In May, the U.S. Supreme Court unanimously ruled that Boston violated the man's free speech rights. The city has since changed its rules for flag displays at City Hall. The City of Boston spokesperson calls the fees reasonable and says it spares the city additional costs from further litigation.
17: It's 535. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. And The Umbrella Stage Company, presenting Jonathan Larson's Tony and Pulitzer-winning rock musical, Rent, starts Friday through December 4th. Theumbrellastage.org. It's 49 degrees in Boston, lows in the mid-30s overnight.
0: Tomorrow is sunny Wednesday, highs in the low 50s. This is WBUR.
18: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, working to harness the power of research to make a difference in the lives of children, teens, and young adults for more than 80 years. Learn more at WTGrantFDN.org. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms.
10: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Melissa Nadwarni. And I'm Ari
9: Shapiro. While election workers count ballots and candidates bite their nails, Democrats and Republicans are already looking at what this campaign has revealed about the American people and American democracy. Today on the program, we are talking with political consultants from both parties. Republican strategist Alice Stewart has worked on many presidential campaigns, including for Ted Cruz and Mike Huckabee. It's good to have you back
33: hi ari it's great to talk with you on such an important day
9: how confident are you feeling about the outcome tonight Uh, do you think republicans are going to take back one or both houses of congress
33: Ari, looking at what we're seeing in the polls and talking with people across the country it it appears that there is tremendous enthusiasm with republican voters and uh, i do anticipate that that could uh, equate to republicans taking over the house and a strong likelihood in the senate uh, it's going to be a close one, but um, there's a lot of enthusiasm with Republican voters and more importantly, are the, the independent voters and a lot of undecided voters. Uh, and they are driven in large part on e- economic issues. You know, we're fortunate that we have already seen um, some early exit polling data that has come out and what we're seeing is a, a big issues that motivate voters are inflation yeah. and you know the state of the the economy is not great and it's it's tending people to gravitate towards Republican because they want change
9: as you look back at the way this campaign has gone over the last few months is there anything you wish your party had done differently anything you think the, the GOP could have done better
33: sure i i think the republicans are right on the policies and the issues and they've done a tremendous job focusing on Uh, economy, inflation, and crime, but certain races across the country, there have been valid and legitimate questions about candidate quality, Hmm. and these are the candidates that were um, really handpicked by former President Trump. They are election deniers. They question the integrity of our election, some even uh, supporting the actions on January 6th, which I think were atrocious, and those issues uh, turn off a lot of voters. So we're seeing uh, some candidates, uh, Blake uh, Masters in Arizona being one, Doug Mastriano in Pennsylvania, and others that are election deniers that are, are struggling in races that uh, Republicans could have been in a much better position had they uh, nominated uh, more moderate candidates.
9: There are also a number of election deniers who seem likely to win their races. And in another part of the program, we spoke with Democratic strategist, Joel Payne, who is concerned about the number of candidates who continue to reject the outcome of legitimate elections. Are you worried about whether American democracy can hold up under that kind of assault?
33: I'm confident in our election process. I've always had confidence in the election process and i i think the best thing we can do is restore confidence in the american people with that i was deputy secretary of state in arkansas we ran elections and i'm confident there are enough checks and balances in place in uh, uh, statewide elections that will prevent anyone from uh, putting their finger on the scale and really having an impact on elections
9: if republicans do win control of either or both houses of congress Tell us one thing that you would really like to see the party prioritize when they take power.
33: Uh, Clearly uh, getting a handle on on inflation and what we've seen with Republican uh, leadership, uh, Kevin McCarthy and his commitment to America has vowed to really look at ways we can, uh, you know, reduce inflation and and certainly also address crime and and work to secure the border. And he has policies in place with a commitment to America in terms of reducing government spending, uh, putting an end to wasteful spending, putting in pro-growth tax policies, which he thinks will help.
9: That is Republican strategist Alice Stewart. Thank you very much for speaking with us.
33: Thanks, Ari. Thirty-six state
10: governor's offices are up for election this midterm. Republicans currently occupy 20 and Democrats 16. Here to give us the lay of the land before returns come in is NPR's Laura Benshoff. Hey, Laura. Hey there. So out of these three dozen races for governor, which will be really close calls? All right, so we have lost Laura Benchoff, but we're gonna try and get her back. She is talking about the 36 state governor's offices that are up for election this midterm. Oh. Uh, We've got about a dozen races for, for about three dozen races for governor, which are going to be really close calls. Let's take this opportunity
9: to let folks know that we are going to have live coverage all this evening and on NPR.org. As polls begin to close at 7 p.m. Eastern time, we're going to start getting some early results in. And as we've been saying, it may be days until we know the final outcome, but it seems like we have Laura Benchoff back on the line. Alyssa?
10: Laura, will you tell us a little bit about some of
35: those races that are super close? That's right. So sorry about that. Um... There are some embattled Democratic incumbents. We're looking at places like Nevada, Michigan, New Mexico, Kansas, and Wisconsin, you know, where Democratic governors are really
10: fighting for their survival. hmm Those are the tight races with an incumbent. What about the ones that have open seats where nobody really has a record to run on?
35: So there are competitive open seats in Oregon and Pennsylvania, but the one that appears closest is in Arizona. There you have a former local Fox News anchor named Carrie Lake. She is backed by former President Donald Trump, and she's running for the Republicans. Now, Lake has repeatedly challenged the outcome of the 2020 election, and Arizona is kind of ground zero for election denialism. The other side of this close race is Democratic candidate Katie Hobbs. She's Arizona's Secretary of State and a Democrat. She oversaw the administration of the 2020 election, so she's basically running as the person who handled all of that denialism and misinformation and got Arizona through it.
10: Hmm. Governor's races can defy normal party politics because voters can split their ticket for a candidate they like. Are there states where someone unexpected could win? Yes.
35: So Oklahoma is one. It's a majority Republican state with some of the strictest abortion restrictions in the country. But the GOP incumbent there, Kevin Stitt, is in a pretty close race. He's running against Joy Hoffmeister, a state education official who switched parties to run against him. And Oregon is another quirky race. This is a heavily Democratic state that might get its first Republican governor in 40 years. That's a race between Democrat Tina Kotek and Republican Christine Drazen. One factor there is a well-known independent candidate who's siphoning off some of the vote. And another is that the outgoing governor, Kate Brown, who's unpopular, and President Joe Biden might just drag down Democratic turnout. Here's University of Kansas political scientist Don Heider Markell.
21: With the unpopular, incumbent, and then of course Biden's ratings in Oregon, there's nothing else really motivating people.
35: He says that might be different in a state that's less blue, where there's more at stake if a Democrat's elected to the governor's office. For example, if abortion is on the ballot.
10: So this is also a historic year in terms of who's likely to hold some of these states. Can you tell tell me about that in just about 30 seconds, Laura?
35: Sure, there are 50 current state governors, 47 are white, 41 are men. It looks like that's gonna change. There's also likely to be the third ever elected black governor in the United States in Maryland, Wes Moore, and also two people who could be the country's first out lesbian governor. That's looking most likely in Massachusetts.
10: Hmm. NPR's Laura Benchoff keeping an eye on the governor's races across the country. Thank you so much, Laura. Thank you.
9: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. For a long time, the phrase suburban voter has been code for white voter. But suburbs are now among the most diverse spaces in American life. And tension is growing over who belongs in suburbia, as NPR's Sandia Dirks reports.
34: Just after Trayvon Martin was killed in 2012, a lot of Black folks started putting hoodies on themselves and their children in solidarity. Whitney Kernodle remembers her family, asking why she hadn't done it too. We lived in a bubble.
29: And I was mindful of the fact that my son's white friends didn't have to put on hoodies and have conversations about police brutality.
34: The bubble they lived in was the D.C. suburb of Arlington, Virginia, and she wanted to keep both her kids safe inside it a little longer.
29: To give them time to be children, to give them time to be just little suburban boys right, in Arlington, as opposed to little Black boys in Arlington.
34: Kernodal is the president of Black Parents of Arlington, a group she co-founded in order to use her privilege as an affluent Black mother to help address disparities. The schools are great for white kids, for wealthy kids, for healthy kids, she says, but not as much for other kids. And there are more and more of those other kids. Because in a lot of ways, no bubble has burst more than the one surrounding the idea of white suburbia. I grew up in the suburbs my whole life. Even I used to equate the word suburb with white. That's Jasmine Clark. She represents Gwinnett County as a Democrat in the Georgia legislature. I've
11: been in suburbs all this time and I'm not white.
34: In 2000, Gwinnett County was about 70% white, 30% Black, Asian, and Latino. By 2020, those demographic numbers had completely flipped. Suburbs have always been more diverse than we imagined, but now it's supercharged.
32: I think it has been
34: really a great migration in terms of the location of people of color and immigrants. Willow Langamom is a professor at the University of Maryland who studies the suburbs. She says this great migration of people of color has been happening over decades, for a lot of different reasons. Many people go to the suburbs for the American dream. Some are pushed out by gentrification in cities. But whatever the reason, you're seeing majority black and brown suburbs that just a decade ago were majority white. Suburbs have also been thought of as middle-class enclaves. But as the middle has been squeezed, there's also more suburban poverty. Our idea of suburbia just hasn't caught up. Jasmine Clark says in Gwinnett County, most people love living in the most diverse place in Georgia, but... The diversity doesn't make the racism go away. It didn't erase the racism. (laughs) In some cases, the fact that these places are no longer majority white brings it all to the surface. But there are other people that are lamenting it, they are hating it, because... They feel like something is being taken away from them. For them, it's zero sum. They feel like they're losing something. The suburbs have persisted as white space in the white imagination for so long. But it's not just an idea that's being lost. It's also a loss of real power, says Whitney Kernodel.
29: When people say to me, you know, it's not like pie. There's enough for everyone. I'm like, "Mm, it is like pie (laughs) because power is to a certain extent absolute And if you expected all of it, and then you only got 90 percent.
34: Last year, white parents and some white folks who weren't parents screamed at local school board meetings over teaching kids about racism or having diversity and inclusion programs. Most of the places where those fights flared were suburbs. And they were suburbs that are changing, suburbs that have grown more diverse. In some cases, like in Gwinnett County, they are also suburbs where Black people had started to get elected to local seats like school boards.
29: The difference between now and then is that
34: we have power too. Because as suburbs change, so does the power of the suburban vote. Sunvia Dirks, NPR News.
10: You're listening to NPR News. This is
0: 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. It is Election Day across the nation. Stakes are high. Live special coverage begins at 8 tonight here on 90.9 WBUR. And follow local and national results all night at WBUR.org.
8: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with private cooking events for team building, family reunions, birthday parties, or nights out. CambridgeCulinary.com.
0: Coming to WBUR City Space Monday, November 21st, a conversation on climate action and activism with author and environmentalist Bill McKibben. For tickets, go to WBUR.org slash events. It's 49 degrees in Boston. Clear skies overnight with lows dropping to the mid-30s. For Wednesday, sunshine. Tomorrow's highs in the
14: low 50s. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Boston Philharmonic with Benjamin Zander and cellist Tyung Choi, Dvorak and Brahms at Symphony Hall, November 12th, bostonphil.org.
22: The 2022 midterms are here.
14: Democracy's on the ballot.
22: Enough
27: is enough is enough.
21: We need conservative fighters that will go on offense.
22: Tuning out is not an option. Join us later today for a live Election Day special. As polls close across the country, we'll bring you updates from across the U.S. and analysis from our experts. Election Day 2022 from NPR News.
27: Live coverage and complete results begins tonight at 8 o'clock on 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org.
10: It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Alyssa Nadworny.
9: And I'm Ari Shapiro. Let's look now at three states where voter turnout could make all the difference and help determine the balance of power in Washington. Georgia, Arizona and Wisconsin are all swing states and we've got reporters in each of them starting with NPR's Danielle Kurtzleben in Oconomowoc, Wisconsin. Danielle, what's on the minds of voters that you've been talking with today?
30: Well, let's start with Democrats here. And for them, a lot of them will tell you that democracy is on the ballot. And of course, you'll hear that everywhere from a lot of people, but it seems to mean something at least a little different for each voter. Let me start with a woman named Georgianne Dockery. I met her at a rally for the incumbent Democratic Governor, Tony Evers. She said democracy is her top issue. And I asked her, okay, what does that mean? And here's how she responded.
33: Well, it's important for women's health it's important for our social security. It's important for everything that we need to do, our religious rights, everything. And I wanna make sure that I was out here to support.
30: So d- voters see this as a, a lot of them will tell you as the most important election of their lifetimes. And we've been hearing that in a lot of elections recently. and But Democrats will tell you that democracy is their top issue and that it safeguards all of the other issues that they care about. Uh, Here in Wisconsin specifically, one of the things that that means to Democrats is that uh, the Republican-led legislature has been trying to pass laws in recent years to tighten voting laws, for example, around absentee voting. Now, Governor Tony Evers has vetoed those, so one question tonight is whether Evers will win the governorship. But even if he does, it's possible that Republicans could win a veto-proof majority in the state legislature. So there is a lot that Democrats are thinking about gaming out. And one other thing is, of course, abortion, like Georgianne mentioned there. Uh, It's a really huge issue here after the Dobbs ruling this year, uh, an 1800s-era law, at least one that originated then, went into effect here that has very few exceptions, uh, banning abortions. So yes, voters here see this as a hugely important election.
9: And what about the importance of inflation to voters in Wisconsin, which we're hearing a a lot about, uh, how uh, important this is to voters?
30: Yeah, once again, if you ask uh, some Republican voters, they will tell you this is the most important election because inflation. That was certainly true for Diane Koops. I met her at a rally in Madison for incumbent Republican Senator Ron Johnson.
33: Here's what she said. Every year they say this is the biggest and most important election. This is really big. If we can't stop the Democrats in their out of control spending, our dollar means nothing anymore because they keep printing more and more and more. So this is really important to try and put a check on their power.
30: And of course, this is something that you often hear from the party that is out of power, out of, for example, the White House during midterms, which is we need to put a check on the other party's power. So you hear a lot of that from Republicans.
9: All right, let's turn to Arizona now, where NPR's Ximena Bustillo is in Phoenix. And Ximena, what have you been hearing from voters on the subject of inflation?
12: Yes, I mean, definitely agree that inflation and rising gas and food prices definitely continue to be on the minds of voters across the political spectrum, unprompted when asked what it is that they care about. And that's why some analysts are saying that Arizona in this election is sort of a referendum on the Biden administration and a referendum on the America First movement. The results could be telling of which direction the state wants to go and what it sees as solutions to larger issues like the right prices. I talked to voters who blame Biden for inflation and want to reject the Democrats, not necessarily vote for the Republicans.
2: It was kind of more of a, I'm not voting for Mark Elliott than, than voting for Blake Masters. That, that's more of what it is with, with, with that race.
12: And that was Jason Chitt. I met him during a GOP rally yesterday where he was dead set on voting on some of the GOP candidates, um, but not on all the others. But he definitely didn't want to continue voting in the Democrats. However, at the same time, I've also talked to voters who are voting for Democrats despite high inflation because they fear some of the GOP talking points about democracy and election security, particularly in Arizona, which we know was the center of a lot of election conspiracy theories after 2020.
9: What about President Biden's message that democracy is on the ballot? Does that seem to be resonating with the voters you're talking to?
12: There are quite a few candidates on the GOP side of the ballot, including Secretary of State candidate Mark Fincham uh, and the governor candidate Carrie Lake that throughout the campaign have either denied the 2020 election results or hedged on whether or not they will accept defeat if that happens later. However, many voters still believe that it's their civic duty to vote, whether it's by mail or in person. I went to a couple locations earlier this morning, Chandler Gilbert Community College uh, and the Gilbert Public Works Department, uh, both in areas that are traditionally more Republican leaning and both had steady turnout and almost everyone, Republicans, independents and Dem- When I first asked them why it is that they were there and what brought them out instead of some policy proposals, they said that it was because it's their responsibility and it's their job as American citizens to to vote. So whether or not that's the whole idea of democracy being on the ballot, that depends on how how the elections kind of turn out.
9: All right. Finally, let's get the view from Georgia, where Stephen Fowler of Georgia Public Broadcasting is in Atlanta. And Stephen, the Republican candidates for governor and secretary of state there have both defended the 2020 election results. How is that democracy message we've been talking about playing with voters in Georgia? So Ari, it's a really interesting
20: situation here. Voters by and large are over false claims of election fraud. In the Republican primary this year, they overwhelmingly supported incumbents like Governor Brian Kemp and Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, who pushed back heavily on those claims. That means some of these candidates might get more bipartisan support than usual. And it's really harder to say that uh, the fight for democracy is on the ballot when everybody from both major parties agrees about elections and election results. But Democrats say that not committing treason and not overturning the election is a very low bar and is a bare minimum, not the maximum those people should do. And they argue voting for Democratic candidates is better for democracy in the bigger national picture, especially considering states like Arizona, we
9: just heard about, where election deniers have a chance of winning. Georgia is also one of a handful of states that could determine whether Republicans control the Senate. Is the national importance of Georgia's Senate race something that voters are uh, aware of is important to them? Absolutely.
20: You know, in many ways, it kind of feels like Groundhog Day, because just like in 2020 and 2021 runoffs, Georgia here is a place where there's close races, national attention, the potential to decide who controls a chamber of Congress. I mean, I've heard from voters on both sides of the aisle who say their choice, especially in the Senate race, is
9: absolutely more about what they think is right for the direction of our country and not just the peach state. That is Stephen Fowler of Georgia Public Broadcasting in Atlanta, NPR's Jimena Bustillo in Phoenix, Arizona, and NPR's Danielle Kurtzleben in Oconomowoc, Wisconsin. Thanks to all three of you. No problem. Thank you.
30: Thank you.
18: is All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. And from ECMC Foundation working to improve post-secondary educational outcomes for underserved students through evidence-based innovation. Learn more at ecmcfoundation.org. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, recognizing exceptionally creative individuals, this year's MacArthur Fellows, and more information, are at macfound.org. This is NPR.
17: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet and just society. Learn how to invest sustainably at Zevin.com. And Ceres, a nonprofit focused on our most pressing sustainability issues, including a green economy. More at CERES.org slash WBUR.
3: I'm here and now executive producer Carleen Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or
0: at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. As they cast their ballots, Americans are expressing concerns about a range of issues.
1: We have a right to bear arms. I think if somebody comes into our homes, we should be able to protect ourselves in our own home, but kids should be able to go to school safely.
0: It is Tuesday, November 8th, Election Day. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening. I'm Sharon Brody in for Lisa Mullins. Ahead, as voting draws to a close, taking stock of the midterm elections and what lies ahead. Also, a conversation about what to watch as voting moves to vote counting. Studies show a generational gap in electric vehicles. Younger people tend to be more approving of them, but less able to afford them. Still, car makers are betting that they are the cars of the future. And the Netflix show The Crown is back and more controversial than ever. It's 6.01. First, this news.
26: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Polls are starting to close at this hour in parts of Indiana and Kentucky, though because those states are divided between Eastern and Central time, it will be another hour before all the polls are closed there. Tens of millions of people, of course, have already voted by mail or through early voting. This is the first election in which members of Gen Z can run for Congress. Turnout among young voters today is being closely watched by both parties. NPR's Toby Smith reports Democrats are hoping the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe versus Wade, will drive young and female voters to the polls and help the party hold on to some closely contested seats.
31: The stakes are lower in Massachusetts, where most races are not even close. The congressional delegation will almost surely end the day the way it started, all blue. But Democratic Party leaders are hoping voters elsewhere will reflect the kind of passion expressed by many here, like Allison Coten, who says she worries about going backwards on abortion and more. I always
35: assumed that once gay marriage was legal, we'd never have to worry about that again. Sorry. And so, you know, knowing that something we felt like we could really depend on could go away. That's really scary.
31: What remains to be seen is whether the surge in young women registering to vote will translate into more of them showing up at the polls. Tovia Smith, NPR News, Boston.
26: Voters in Texas weighing in on some big statewide races today, including the governor's seat. Republicans in the state are also trying to flip a newly competitive congressional seat to the U.S.-Mexico border. Here's NPR's Ashley Lopez.
35: In McAllen, here in the Rio Grande Valley, 24-year-old voter Amy Alvarez says the governor's race was front of mind for her in this election. Alvarez says she supports Democratic challenger Beto O'Rourke over Governor Greg Abbott.
31: Well, I know he wanted to do something with, like, the gun control because of the, the shooting over there. I know he wanted to be like more stricter on that.
35: After 18-year-old Salvador Ramos gunned down 21 people, including 19 children, O'Rourke called for raising the minimum age for purchasing an assault weapon in Texas. Republicans say they hope the economy will give them the edge in this part of the state. Ashley Lopez, NPR News, McAllen.
26: Stocks closed higher on this election day. More from NPR's David Gura
21: All three major indexes closed higher for the third trading day in a row, the Nasdaq and the S&P 500 by half a percent each. Historically, Wall Street has welcomed divided government, where one party doesn't control both the legislative branch and the executive branch. It leads to gridlock, but at least investors know what to expect, which is not much. But many of them say the results of this election will be less important to markets than past elections for a couple reasons. First, because the Federal Reserve's aggressive fight against high inflation is so important. And second, because what Wall Street's really worried about is a recession.
26: David Gurra, NPR News, New York. You're listening to NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Polls remain open in Massachusetts for about two more hours this election day. WBUR's Simone Rios reports voters have a lot on their minds.
7: I visited polling places in Quincy and Milton today, and I heard the same thing over and over again. Many races in Massachusetts seem like foregone conclusions. More concerning is what's happening in states that Democrats flipped when Joe Biden was elected president. But it seems to go deeper than partisanship for some. Diane Gardner of Quincy told me the country should now be called the divided states of America. Another voter in Quincy said it feels like democracy is at stake in this election, and the best way he could help was by voting here. Issues that do matter to voters here include ballot questions. Question one would put an additional 4% tax on income over a million dollars, and question four would uphold the law passed this year to allow undocumented immigrants to get driver's licenses. For 90.9 WBUR. I'm Simone Rios.
0: Two other questions also are on the statewide ballot today. Question two would require that at least 83 percent of dental insurance premiums go toward patient care. Question three would gradually raise the number of retail beer and wine licenses a single company can own. Massachusetts voters also are deciding on statewide offices, governor and lieutenant governor, attorney general, secretary of state, treasurer and auditor. Nearly 115,000 residents of Boston had cast their ballots as of 3 o'clock this afternoon. The Boston Election Department says that's about 26% of everyone in the city who's eligible to vote. Statewide, the Secretary of State's office estimates 2.2 million ballots will be cast in the general election. Here's a reminder. In case you feel compelled to snap a selfie with your ballot after you've filled it out, state law prohibits letting anyone else see the markings on your ballot, Infractions are punishable by up to six months in jail and a fine of up to $100. Join WBUR and NPR this evening beginning at 8 for live results and analysis of local and national races. You can also follow the coverage at WBUR.org. It is 48 degrees in Boston, lows in the mid-30s tonight, sunny tomorrow, highs in the low 50s.
17: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Katina Foundation, supporting the Asylum Seeker Advocacy Project, providing more than 100,000 asylum seekers in the U.S. with community and legal support. Learn more at asylum.news.
9: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro.
10: And I'm Alyssa Nadworny. It's Election Day in America, and millions are heading to the polls today.
9: Early voting numbers surpassed those from the last midterm in 2018, more than 45 million early votes were cast ahead of today. And after months of speculation about what will happen, this is the last chance for voters to have their
10: say. NPR spoke to many casting their ballots across the country today to find out what's bringing them to the polls this midterm election. Life after Roe v. Wade is a top of mind issue for voters like Celeste Pendarvis in Atlanta, Georgia.
12: Definitely abortion rights and getting folks in office that will preserve that right.
9: The threat of recession and the reality of inflation are also motivating voters across the country, including Tom Donlin in Waltham, Massachusetts.
11: And the economy in general, you know, we're um at the age, we're dependent on our 401k, and you certainly want the stock market to go back in the right direction. And I think that's all tied in with inflation and you know, government policies to bring down prices on essentials and get the supply
9: chain moving and keep it moving. And guns continue to be a focus for voters, like Gladie Feliciano in Phoenix, Arizona.
1: We have a right to bear arms. I think that if somebody comes into our homes, that we should be able to protect ourselves in our own home. But outside of it, like, kids should be able to go to school safely, you know. And I think that there has to be something in place to be able to change.
10: Also, student debt.
1: Marvin Casasola in Waltham has over $100,000
10: in loans and says the Biden administration's current promise just isn't enough.
20: I'm one
7: of those students that, you know, or was one of those students, still in debt, hoping something can come out of that. And that promise that he made when he was running for election and now only up to a $20,000 cancellation, that's, that's the interest on the, on the capital for like a couple
9: of years. Hada de Santiago in Tampa, Florida, says she's concerned about a number of social issues.
12: Our current governor is attacking certain LGBTQ plus rights, women's rights, education rights. And I went in there keeping that in mind because I'm an education major and I fear for my future as an educator.
10: Voices from across the country sharing the issues that were central to how they cast their ballots today.
9: While some reporters are out at polling places today asking about specific issues, national political correspondent Mara Liason is looking at the big picture. Hey, Mara. Hi there, Ari. So what are some of the big questions that this election will answer?
13: One of the questions is how powerful are the fundamentals? You know, we know that normally the party out of power has the advantage, in this case, the Republicans. We know the president is unpopular. That's an important fundamental. We know that inflation is really bad and there are widespread concerns about the economy. But will those fundamentals work against the Democrats or are we so tribalized and polarized that they won't work as strongly? Other big question, especially for the Senate races, concerns what Mitch McConnell has called candidate quality. There are several Republicans, Senate... Uh, candidates who've had personal problems and scandals. For example, Georgia Republican Senate candidate Herschel Walker. There are other candidates who have very low favorability ratings. That's Mehmet Oz, the Republican running for the Senate in Pennsylvania. But both Oz and Walker are still uh, favored in the polls by a tiny bit. So the question is, Uh, Voters have told pollsters, 63% of Democrats and Republicans, that they'll stick with their candidate even if they have personal or moral failings. We'll see if that works out tonight. And then the last thing we're going to find out about is whether the historical trend that all most toss-up races within two points in the polls, tend to swing in one direction at the end. There are a lot of toss-up races tonight. They've been heading in the Republican direction. The question is, will they all break in that direction?
9: You described the reasons that historical trends would be expected to favor Republicans tonight. If that holds, what kind of gains should we expect the GOP to make?
13: Well, based on historical trends, Democrats could expect to lose 20 to 30 seats, and that would be a normal midterm result for the party in power. If they lost only 20, that would be very good for the Democrats. Anything above 40 would be a total blowout. For the Senate, the big question is whether Democrats can hang on to their very, very small majority. They can't afford to lose one net seat.
9: Do you think we're actually going to know the outcome tonight?
13: no we won't and that's something that people should really understand patience is our message it could take a week it could take longer than that uh there are a lot of states that don't allow the counting of mail-in ballots until election day or later so we might be waiting for the results for quite some time there also might be runoff elections
9: and in the meantime what kind of tea leaves are you going to be trying to read
13: Well, I think there are a couple of things I'm watching for tonight. First of all, will there be an Election Day red tsunami? We know that more Democrats vote early, more Republicans vote on Election Day. Former President Trump has asked Republicans to wait until today. Uh, to vote. Democrats have been pretty happy with their early voting turnout in a lot of states, but it, the question is, will Republican election day turnout swamp that? The other thing I'm watching is some uh, House races that, that will report early, like uh, in the state of Virginia. If a Democratic representative like Abigail Spanberger gets swept away from her very blue seat, we'll know that the night is going to look pretty ugly for Democrats. Um, And like everyone else, I'm also watching for how much chaos will there be at polling places? Are voters being challenged and turned away? Uh, That's something that I'm watching for.
9: Uh, There's something that President Biden has been saying on the campaign trail a lot, which other presidents before him have said. Here's how he put it last week when he was campaigning in San Diego for Representative Mike Levin.
26: Five days,
15: five days of one of the most important elections. In our lifetime.
9: One of the most important elections in our lifetime, he says. How high would you say the stakes are tonight?
13: Well, you know, every president says every single election is the most important election in our lifetime. But I think the stakes are pretty high because it's not just about divided government and the fate of Biden's agenda. But there are at least 345 Republican candidates on the ballot who have said that the 2020 election was stolen. More than half of those candidates have a good chance of winning. Very few of them have said they would accept the results of the election if they're not declared the winner. And that, I think, is means the stakes are very high for democracy. Donald Trump has a playbook for this. He's already saying the vote is rigged in Pennsylvania. But uh, the playbook is simply... Uh, Call for the count to be stopped after election day, especially if Republicans are ahead. Declare victory. And if you're not named the winner, say the race was stolen. And we're watching elections deniers who are running for secretary of state in places like uh, Arizona and Nevada. Uh, If they get in, they're saying that they would possibly try to reinstate Donald Trump. So, yes, democracy is on the ballot. NPR's Mara Eliasson, thanks a lot. You're welcome.
10: As voters continue to cast their ballots on this election day, let me bring in NPR's Miles Parks to talk about how the voting process has gone and what to watch for when vote counts start coming in. Hey, Miles. Hey there. So let's start with the big picture. How has voting gone so far today?
16: Honestly, it's gone pretty well. I mean, we haven't seen any giant issues, including notably, we haven't seen any violence at precincts, which was a big concern considering all the vote monitoring efforts we've seen over the last couple of weeks. Federal officials also say there have been no reports of foreign interference that they've found in in voting infrastructure. But as a reminder, there are thousands of voting jurisdictions in the U.S., tens of thousands of precincts, and we have seen individualized kind of smaller issues pop up.
10: What what kind of problems?
16: Well, in Arizona's Maricopa County, for instance, which is a critical place politically, it's the largest county in Arizona, Maricopa officials said earlier today that about 20% of the county's polling locations were experiencing a technical issue with ballot uh, tabulators, the, hmm. the machines that count the ballots. So officials put out a video explaining the issue, saying voters had a couple of options. They could either go to another precinct if they signed out of this one, or they could put their ballots in essentially a drop box, which would then be tabulated later on in the evening. But as you can imagine, this has been a goldmine for people pushing this information. People like former President Trump have already seized on this. Right-wing influencers say it's kind of some evidence of some broad fraud scheme, which is exhausting, but it's also expected. Officials have been saying for the last couple of weeks that people were going to try to seize on little normal issues that happen in every election cycle to try to say something nefarious is happening. There's no evidence that's the case.
10: Yeah, make them bigger than they seem. Mm -hmm. All right, let's turn now to some of the races. You've been watching Secretary of State races roles involved in election administration what are you watching for So
16: the three key races I'm going to be watching are in swing states. Michigan, Nevada, and Arizona all have election deniers running to oversee voting in those states. All of these candidates say they think the 2020 election was stolen, and they all have formed a coalition that basically says they want to eliminate most forms of early voting, among other things. I spoke with Cisco Aguilar, who's the Democrat running against one of these election deniers, Jim Marchant, in Nevada. And if Marchant is elected, Aguilar said the next two years will be spent litigating the extreme changes that he's pushing what it's gonna do is be a stimulus package for attorneys. You're gonna have constant litigation in this state, which is gonna create chaos. And by the mere fact that chaos exists, will create uncertainty in the election process. Now, Marchant says he just wants to secure the voting process, but Aguilar called him the most dangerous candidate on the ballot this cycle, which may sound a lot like hyperbole, but I've heard the same thing from a bunch of voting experts who are really worried about the future of democracy in a number of these states if election deniers are overseeing the process in 2024.
10: So when polls close, we're going to turn to vote counting. What should listeners keep in mind for the results?
16: The biggest word, and I feel like listeners have been hearing it a lot the last couple of weeks, is patience. You know, Mm. we've seen this huge rise in mail voting over the last couple of election cycles, and mail ballots just take longer to count, especially in states like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, where the laws have not kept up with this trend, and election officials can't even start the arduous work of kind of processing these mail ballots, doing the security things that are needed Mm -hmm. to keep this process safe until on election day, so especially in those states, process may take hours. It may take days. It potentially could be weeks before we know the, the fate of some of these races. So everyone just has to take a second, <laughs> take a breath, and you know, stay calm.
10: Yeah. And if you don't get results, don't be alarmed. No, yeah, it's yeah. normal. NPR's Miles Parks, thank you. And when polls close, you can head to npr.org for the first results for all the key races across the country.
9: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Sharon Brody. As you are following election results tonight, keep WBUR.org open on your phone or iPad. All the key local and national results are in one place when you follow the vote at WBUR.org.
8: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by JBS Home Inspections. With condo common area consultations, as well as home inspections for buyers and sellers throughout greater Boston, jbsinspections.com. And Landry and & Arkari, fall event now through the 12th with new antique hand-knotted rugs. Boston, Salem, and Framingham, landryandarkari.com. On Wall Street,
0: stocks closed up today. The Dow closed up 333 points to finish the day at 33,160. The Nasdaq ended the day up half a percent, up 51 points at 10,616. The S&P 500 closed up half a percent, up 21 points at 3828. This is 90.9 WBUR.
14: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo, covering Metro Boston windows for over 30 years with shades, blinds, draperies, and more, InuWindow's
5: design team in Natick, and Innuendo.com. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it, and thanks.
31: Just go to WBUR.org.
0: It is 48 degrees in Boston, clear skies tonight, lows dropping to the mid-30s. Tomorrow, a sunny Wednesday and temperatures in the low 50s. On Thursday, you can expect sunshine and highs reaching the mid-60s.
17: This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Umbrella Stage Company, presenting Jonathan Larson's Tony and Pulitzer-winning rock musical, Rent. Starts Friday through December 4th. Theumbrellastage.org. Direct Tire and Auto Service. Proud to support WBUR and public radio to help keep quality programming alive. DirectTire.com. And German International School Boston, a bilingual, globally-minded education from preschool to high school. Learn more at GISBOS.org. From
10: NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Alyssa Nadwarni.
9: And I'm Ari Shapiro. Automakers are placing a big bet on the rise of electric vehicles, even though some of the people most interested in buying them can't afford them yet. We're talking about young people, say, under 40. NPR's Camila Dominovsky takes a look at this enthusiasm age gap.
19: Let's start with someone who is way under 40. Avi. And I'm Rog. Meet Avi Aaron and his dad, Rog. A few years ago, Rog was driving when Avi, then in preschool, piped up from the back seat.
20: He said, is this a Tesla? And I said, no, it's a Camry.
19: Okay, Avi said, but it's electric, right?
20: I said, nope, it's a Camry and it uses gas.
19: If you think that was the end of the conversation, you probably don't know any preschoolers.
20: Kevin asking, like, shouldn't we drive an electric car? Why don't we drive an electric car?
19: Okay, this is obviously an extreme example of the generational divide on electric vehicles, but the divide is real. It shows up in poll after poll. People under 40 are more likely to want to go electric, but people over 40 are more likely to actually buy a new car especially a pricey one like an electric vehicle. Is that a conundrum for the auto industry? Matt Jones with the auto pricing site True Car says maybe not.
21: We're not living only in today. We have to think about what's coming up next.
19: Think about what's coming up in, say, 2035, when California and New York will start requiring all new vehicles to be zero emission.
21: Because as we get to the time around 2035, these people who, you know, we're we're calling youngsters now are not necessarily going to be so young.
19: In short, he argues, as automakers are ramping up production, these electric vehicle fans will be growing up into prime car buying age. Meanwhile, data show that interest in electric vehicles is rising, and not just among young people.
22: It's more so just kind of across the spectrum.
19: Shelly Francis runs a consulting group called EV Noir and talks to both automakers and drivers. She says when gas prices went up this summer, she got a lot of questions like…
22: You guys work in that electric vehicle space, like tell me more about how I can save money because these gas prices are killing me.
19: And drivers young and old care about gas prices. There are big challenges as automakers try to take electric vehicles from a few percent of sales to most of the auto market. They need materials. Charging infrastructure is a hurdle. Prices need to come down. But this age gap? It's not a major concern to the industry. As young people get older, and older people get more interested in electric vehicles. Consider the Aaron family. I asked Avi, who's now seven, what the family drives today. A police dog. Polestar. That's a Volvo spinoff. And? It's an electric car. And his grandparents? They now drive a Kia Niro and a Nissan Leaf, both all electric. Camila Dominowski,
10: NPR News. The Crown is back on Netflix for a fifth season this week. And while the series can boast 21 Emmys, not everyone is a fan. A dramatized tale of the royal family returning just months after the actual death of Queen Elizabeth brings a new dimension to familiar complaints about historical accuracy. Linda Holmes, one of the hosts of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour, is here to talk about it. Hi, Linda. Hi, Alyssa. Okay, so every season there are complaints about the accuracy of the crown, which Netflix has always said is fictionalized. What's that controversy look like right now? Well, I think the death of Queen Elizabeth,
11: whose life is essentially the frame of the show, has made some people feel like these questions are more sensitive. But the bigger issue may be that King Charles has just become king. Mm -hmm. And so for people who have a reverence for the monarchy, it's uncomfortable that this season which covers his his very public breakup with Diana, is not flattering. Um, we're gonna hear a little bit of that fight. This is Dominic West and Elizabeth Debicki, who are now playing Charles and Diana. This is our holiday.
18: It's a rare opportunity for us to be together with the boys as a family. And I know you struggle with that sort of thing, which is why I agreed to bringing your friends along to entertain you. And I even agreed to do the photo call today. Requested by your people so the lie could be paraded to the world's media about what an adoring husband you are on one condition.
23: What's that? That
18: you actually are one!
10: Hmm. So is it Buckingham Palace itself that objects to the crown, or where are these objectives coming from? Well, it's not from the palace directly. The palace
11: makes a policy of not officially commenting on all this. So it's hard to say how they're actually responding publicly. It's been other people objecting. This time around, former Prime Minister John Major is one, as well as the actress Judi Dench. She Mm. wrote a letter to the Times of London arguing that people might think everything
10: they saw in the series was true when it isn't. What does somebody like Judi Dench want to happen, given that the crown is already a really popular tv show and it's airing yeah well the argument has been that it should carry a disclaimer
11: at the beginning of every episode saying that it's fictional that's what she argued for in her letter netflix has declined to do that for the series although they added a note for the trailer honestly it is hard for me to imagine that doing that would make a big difference. I think it's it's more a gesture. It's a desire to have Netflix and Peter Morgan, who's the creator of the show, in some way acknowledge all these concerns as as legitimate and almost kind of apologize hmm. a little bit, maybe.
10: Yeah. Are there specific elements of the show that people object to, or is it just this general portrayal?
11: Well, it's both. I think the biggest dust-up over a scene this season is that in the first episode, Charles is seen meeting with John Major, who was Mm. then the prime minister, and trying to nudge him toward nudging Elizabeth toward stepping down. So in other words, it shows Charles sort of maneuvering to accelerate his own rise to become king. This is uh, West again with Johnny Lee Miller playing John Major.
23: You're coming to Balmoral to the Gillies Ball? Yes. Very much looking forward to it. Well, then you'll have an opportunity to uh, judge for yourself whether this institution that we all care about so deeply is in safe hands.
13: So
11: it's kind of Riley funny to me in retrospect, because he wasn't king for another, like, 30 years after this. So (laughs) if he had tried that, it certainly did not work. But. Major has said this meeting never happened, never would have happened. It's totally fictional. He said inventing it for the show was um, malicious, actually.
10: So as host of Pop Culture Happy Hour, you watched a lot of dramatized stories. Do you think it's a fair complaint that the series is unfair to the royal family? You know,
11: I am always surprised that anybody complains about this show on their behalf, because I think of the series as hugely sympathetic to them. I think to a lot of people, including a lot of British people, it's too sympathetic to them. Um, that's the flip side of the, some of the distaste for it. You know, when John Major was talking about this season and that meeting that that he objected to them making up, he said, among other things, that the show um, puts words into the mouths of those still living and in no position to defend themselves. And in context, I took that to be about Ch- King Charles. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty wild right because you would think as the king you could defend yourself but that view of the monarchy as unable to change Mm -hmm. through no fault of anyone in it is in a lot of ways a, a very royalist view
10: the fifth season of the crown is on netflix this week npr's linda holmes thanks so much for being here
11: thank you for having me
9: This is NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Sharon Brody. Thanks for spending Election Day with 90.9 WBUR. Follow our reporting on WBUR.org and listen live tonight starting at 8 o'clock for results and analysis from WBUR and NPR. It is 48 degrees in Boston with clear skies tonight, overnight lows dropping to the mid-30s, plenty of sunshine tomorrow, Wednesday's highs reaching the low 50s on Thursday, sunny skies and highs all the way up into the mid-60s.
17: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bentley University, where students learn the power of good business and how it can make the world a better place. Bentley University, a force for business, a force for good. And the Greater Boston Food Bank. You can give the gift of a holiday meal for just $30. Donate at gbfb.org wbur.